in Chicago, two comedian skeptics named Andy and Art were mysteriously abducted by the illusionary mastermind and conspiracy theorist known only as Mr. Mr. Bunker. Bunker. The following serves as a record of Bunker's attempt to convince non-believers of the truth about conspiracies and paranormal activity. Andy and Art give an uninterrupted presentation and verdict on the plausibility of these offbeat topics, delivering what they call the, the whole enchilada. Will Mr. Bunker convince these two skeptics any of this is real? Will it convince you? Welcome to Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast. As always, I'm your co-host, Art Stone, and with me, as always, is your co-host, Andy Hart. Hey, Bunk Funkers! Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Good to see you, I guess. With the bunk out, it's less dangerous. Here we are now, entertain us. I feel stupid. Entertain here we are now. Entertain us. What do you think, Andy? Do you think the listeners are singing that to us every single week? <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. I actually think that that's probably how, uh, instead of listening to anything at the top of the podcast, they're probably just singing to themselves that over and over <laughs> again. Well, Andy, why? I mean, if they're not singing it every week, they're definitely singing it this week. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, I know. They've, uh, I mean, spoiler alert, you already read this in the episode description, but uh, there's we don't a know that. connection. Oh, oh. We don't oh. know that, Andy. Maybe Am I some spoiling of our something? listeners. Spoiler alert. Maybe some of our listeners blind their eyes to the episode topic. They like to be surprised. And they keep themselves surprised. We don't know that. Mm-hmm. That's true. But that's true. You're right. There is a Nirvana connection to this week because we're discussing. The theory. And we don't just mean that you're going to be in a state of nirvana after oh, listening yeah. to this show. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, that's a guarantee every week. <laughs> yeah. You get your belly full of enchilada and you just want to take a nap. <laughs> yep. That's nirvana, but baby. But this week, we're discussing the theory on whether Kurt Cobain was murdered instead of um, uh, instead of committing suicide. If he was, he was murdered... By somebody, or if you know what we what we think happened is that he you know commits committed suicide, and uh, yeah, and 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 this this episode, Andy, in particular, I mean, you know, I know we maybe say this every single week, but I think this is going to be a doozy. I think this is going to shock some listeners. <laughs> yeah, we we try our best to shock you. Uh we're shock jocks. And <laughs> that's what gets us off. And this week um, no different. We're just trying to get our rocks off by making you uncomfortable. I mean, I'm just saying though, don't you think Andy though that this week, I mean, there's going to be some shocking discussions, I think. I think there's going to be some um, big reveals. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I think that there could be some uh, some big reveals. Uh, I'm as excited as anybody to see where this takes us. Oh boy! I mean, here I don't want to let I don't want to let the uh, proverbial. Uh, uh, <laughs> I tried to make a Nirvana. I was going to say the Nirvana cat out of the bag. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, Nirvana cat. Uh, that was the. Uh, the uh, short-lived uh, Jim Davis <laughs> sequel to Garfield. I thought about retiring Garfield in the early 90s, and instead Jim Davis made Nirvana Cat for a few months. Yeah, he loved, uh, instead of loving lasagna, he loved drugs. And instead of <laughs> hating Monday, he hated uh, corporate interests in music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and mainstream record labels. Yeah, Jim Davis, uh, a real agitator. Oh, yeah. real Really had his pulse on the heartbeat of the cultural zeitgeist of the 90s. Mm-hmm. I don't want to let the proverbial Nirvana cat out of the bag, but this was kind of a theory that both you and I <laughs> had some knowledge of prior to looking into this, and we both kind of had some maybe positive-leaning opinions. Is that fair to say? Andy, huh? Uh, yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, I think you knew more than I did about this specific topic, but I think we both had somewhat of a preconceived notion about what we would find. But rest assured, bunk funkers, we don't let our prior opinions impact our research. That's right. We're going to give you the whole enchilada, and we're going to be affected by the whole enchilada. Well, and and that's uh, so very true, Andy. And uh, let's not wait any longer. I mean, uh, well, let's not let the bunk funkers wait any longer. (laughs) If they choose not to wait. You can go and get affected by uh, all this research. It's a big enchilada this week. and um, It's meaty. And uh, go look in the uh, show notes. They're in there in the episode description. You will find a timestamp that will take you to right when the research begins, and you can get right into it. You can dive right in because first, well, Andy, in and honor I, of this week's topic, the uh, yeah. timestamp is in CD track format. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> just kidding. It's just a regular timestamp. And uh, also in honor of this week's subject, the uh, timestamp has been uh, constantly fucking remastered 18 million times and re-released in eight different deluxe versions and then uploaded to Spotify. (laughs) Don't worry, I'll talk about it in the discussion. All right, all right. (laughs) I'll keep quiet then for Um, now. So we got to talk about where in the world is Mr. Bunker this week. And it's very apropos, wouldn't you say, Andy? (laughs) Yeah, Mr. Bunker, not one for subtlety, uh, as I think we can all say safely now. Um, You know, Bunkfuckers, where would you think Mr. Bunker is this week? Would you think it's Seattle? Because you'd be right. Uh, (laughs) He's hitting the nail right on the head. Uh, I don't think... um, I don't think that... um, I don't think that we were surprised, you know, that that's where he was when we got this this topic, right? You know, we never know where he's going to be. But, uh, you know, if you've been following along, Mr. Bunker has famously been uh, we're Art and I are in quarantine. We're not allowed to see each other. Um, 
and for a lot of reasons. And while we've been in quarantine, we're out of the bunker. Mr. Bunker has taken the opportunity to travel the world and even outside of the world yep. uh, to experience uh, life to its fullest. Mm-hmm. And this week was no different. Um, he was in Seattle. Uh, every week he's been sending us postcards uh, with a picture of himself in front of whatever he's doing while he's in the location where he is. And then on the back, he's uh, scrawled some notes, uh, including letting us know what to uh, what to look into for the week. Right. So this week, uh, we got a postcard, lovely postcard of a uh, picture on the front. Mr. Bunker, uh, just outside of the Space Needle in Seattle. Um, and he had a real harumph. Look on his face is how I would describe it. Very like, harumph. When I saw it, he had, I immediately recalled mm-hmm. that word and I said, that's harumph. He He's was harumph. mean mugging yeah. out in front. of. He looked disappointed. Um, and there's like a smiling um, bald guy. You know, one of these guys that's bald on the top but has hair around uh, the sides. Um and he's this guy is smiling. He's he's overweight. He's chubby, um, and he's uh, he's like dressed like a dad. You know, he's got like jeans with a shirt tucked in, um, and he's giving a thumbs up at the camera. And he's got his arm around Mister Bunker, and Mister Bunker just doesn't look like he's having it. Um, and the back of the postcard revealed why. Um, apparently, Mister Bunker um, went to Seattle looking for the Chaz. Or the Chad, um, no, I mean not me and Art, not Chads, but Chad as an with, acronym with a Z at the end. Well, there's it's, Chad and the, Chaz. The it's, Capitol it's Hill names. Autonomous Zone, or the Capitol Hill Autonomous District, depending on what point in time you picked up on that story. Right. Um, needless to say, uh, Mr. Bunker, obviously he, this is right up his alley, right? Like. Yeah, he An wants to get in there. Zone? He wants to see what's up. I mean, up, come on. You know, and he might so go he, in there was, and try and take it over. You know, that's what he kind of does. Hard to know what he's up to in there. Yeah. So he goes to Seattle. He's looking for the Chaz. And uh, it turns out um, he he didn't find the Chaz. Uh, instead, he found the Chode, which <laughs> turns out is the Space Needle, which had been taken over by... A group of enthusiasts who call themselves chodes, uh, they're they're girthy penis enthusiasts. Um, and it turns out that uh, Mr. Bunker, you know, infiltrated the chode, so to speak. Uh, he infiltrated unwittingly. Unwittingly, he didn't realize that he thought he was going to the chaz, but he went to the chode. And uh, yeah, he ended up being a becoming a member of chode because it turns out, I mean. He wrote this in here. It seems grudgingly like he admitted, but he didn't have to tell us this. Apparently, he has a chode, and he was upset because, you know, he used to get made fun of in the locker room in high school. Wow. Because of his chode. He's extremely girthy penis. A chode (laughs) is a penis that's girthier than it is long. (laughs) Well, you know what? So he had kind of a harump face because now he's a member of chode. He's he's a a duty... Duty paying member of Ch- of Chode, card carrying member, and uh, <laughs> yeah, he he paid the he paid the annual fee of sixty nine dollars, and now he's a member of Chode. He might even get the cool little jacket if he stays in a whole year. <laughs> it's like one of those Looney Tunes jackets, except it's 
uh, pop in out of that Looney Tunes circle thing is just a few uh, girthy penises. <laughs> you know, I mean, I can't help but feel like this is somewhat just desserts here for Mr. Bunker after he's kind of been dunking on us the past couple weeks. I think he deserves to get dunked on himself. Yeah, I think I think this I mean, I personally I think it's very funny and I feel not bad at all for him. I mean, you know, like when he had those bears from Build-A-Bear and he took us on those that, you know, he he made stuffed bears of us. Oh, and don't forget it's, the uh it's embarrassing. Don't the Kabuki puppets. Oh, who could forget the Bunraku puppets? Yeah. Oh, Bunraku, yeah. I'm not as schooled in Japanese theater, forgive me. Could, I, I mean, he just dunked on us, you know? He's been dunking yeah, on us every single week. And, and we're getting sick of it. Yeah, it feels good to have the universe, like, hand a little karma back his way. Well, that is where in the world is Mr. Bunker. And you know what? Fucking have fun in the Space Needle Bunker. <laughs> With all your girthy penis buds. Yeah. <laughs> Why did they pick the Space Needle? The Space Needle objectively is longer than it is wide. <laughs> I guess kind of at the end of the Space Needle, it's kind of thick. <laughs> it's just that top part. Yeah. They're only measuring from a certain way up. It's got a, it looks like a penis with a, with a real thick mushroom head. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I get it. So they're saying that the rest of that is inside. Sure. Then the top of the Space Needle is the part that's outside the skin. That's sure. the part that you sure. see. Okay, I get it. I see you've been maybe reading up on some of their literature. Well, you know, I looked into Chaz, and then I looked into Chode. Yeah. I have a brochure. From Chaz to Chode, covering all the cha topics here on Mr. Bunker's So you think you might be a Chode. So you think you might be a Chode. Is Chode right for you? (laughs) Chode, you join Chode? (laughs) Um, let us chode you the way oh Jesus <laughs> are you the chodes in one <laughs> you know when you when your de- life's got you down in the dumps you're feeling used up chowed up spit out it's good to know you've got some friends that's what chode's about well, that's the ultimate chode theme you've got a friend in me um <laughs> <laughs> You've got a chode in me. You got a chode in me. You um, got a chode in me. Well, you know what, Andy? We have friends who in us as well. That came out wrong. <laughs> we have friends in low places. That's right. This week's topic is all about Garth Brooks. Wait. <laughs> no, we have a bunker alarm to sound off for. One, you know, one bunk funker who has um, sent us in so many great emails and given us a lot of food for thought, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of really thoughtful uh, emails with lots of good information, personal stories and things that have really, I think, uh, given us, like you said, a lot to think about uh, in yep. the wake of some of our episodes. Um, it's been a pleasure. Uh, corresponding with this bunk funker. That's right. This this bunk funker is Heba, and Heba has sent us a ton of awesome emails over the span of the our current episodes. And 
I mean, we have multiple email exchanges going back and forth, discussing ideas, talking about things that they're bringing up to us, and um, it's been great. So for that reason, you know what? We're going to sound a bunker alarm for Heba. So uh, here, here it is. Well, first of all, we need to figure out the bunker alarm this week. Uh, I need to dial it in here, Andy. Uh, I think that we should go with a uh, with a standard European nina nina nina. Okay. So I'm gonna dial this in here real quick. Dialing it in on the bunker okay. alarmotron. Okay. Yeah. Three thousand. Get it queued up there. Yep. Got it queued up. Okay, and here it is, perfectly synced up for Heba. The bunker alarm. Here it is. Hey, not the worst. <laughs> not the worst. Not the best, but not the worst. Not the worst. Um, thank you, Heba, for all the wonderful emails that you've sent us over the... the uh, I was going to say over the years, but yeah, we've only been around for like a <laughs> over year and the a half. year, over the year. Um, no, we appreciate it. And um, we appreciate so many of our bunk funkers. You know, if you ever want to drop us a line or shoot us a message, um, email us mrbunkerpod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram at mrbunkerpod. Mm-hmm. And hey, you might find yourselves getting a bunker alarm played for you. <laughs> what an honor. Oh boy, Andy, this is uh, this is going to be an interesting one. I, we'll talk about yeah. it. We'll talk about how big <laughs> how this, of Nirvana works, yeah. fans we both are. You're a huge mm-hmm. Nirvana fan. Uh, you can't get enough of the band, and we're going to cover the whole gamut. Um, the bulk of this research takes place mostly from a documentary, a docudrama, I should say, called Soaked in Bleach. But the bulk of the research really comes from a guy named Tom Grant, who so many times in our topics, you know, we kind of get, we do get firsthand account from people, but like he's, uh, I mean, he is, he is ingrained in the story. Like he is part of it and will be forever. Like there, there's no denying Tom Grant's influence in the uh, the story on how, you know, unfortunately, Kurt Cobain was found dead. Yeah, I mean, say what you, I mean, obviously we're going to get to this, but say what you will uh, about the whole thing. I mean, Tom Grant is in a lot of ways like the authoritative source on the possibilities outside of a suicide. That's right. And um, so we're going to get to it here. This is um, the death of Kurt Cobain here on Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast. To say that Nirvana and their frontman... Uh, Kurt Cobain changed the face of rock music in the early 90s would be an understatement. I mean, at least in the opinion of this co-host. Nirvana brought grunge and, as drummer Dave Grohl called it, Kurt's spitting nails vocals, the raw energy and power of their records, 
and performances ignited a musical revolution that spanned a decade and continues to inspire to this very day. Now, I personally, I adore this band. And the music they made resonated with me, as I'm sure it did so many other angsty, angsty teens and non-angsty teens. Non-angsty people can enjoy it as well, but... I loved Nirvana. I listened to them nonstop. I mean, non-fucking-stop. Just all day long, I would cue them up. Back then, Pandora was had just become a thing. Pandora, that like uh, streaming radio internet playlist thing. God damn, I would just listen to Nirvana all day long. And I would I listened to them just so much through like ages 13 to 15, 16. That, I mean, I almost got sick of them. I listened to them so much. Um, What else can I really say? I mean, it's just... Everything about them, just, I just... Uh, the the grunginess, the the melodies, the Kurt's vocals, Dave Grohl's drumming, um, the riffs, I mean, everything, you know? I'll say this, my favorite song is off Nevermind. It's called Drain You. Um, great song, great record. But again, this is the opinion of one of your co-hosts, dear bunk funkers. Now, my sweet little Andy, what about you? What do you think about Nirvana? How how did they affect you? If they did, <laughs> I mean, I guess they didn't at all. In oh, okay. Most ways, uh, I. I I mean I'm familiar um I'll tell you I think that my first introduction to Nirvana uh and this is probably an interesting thing to say given um given that I'm like was was my formative years were in the 90s um my first introduction to Nirvana was probably through Weird Al that parody of Smells Like Teen Spirit I mean when I heard that song first I didn't get the reference uh, so <laughs> I, uh, I don't think I've ever listened to a Nirvana album from start wow. to finish. Um, so I mean, I, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know why I, I, I was never like, I never grunge never got to me, uh, yeah. at all. As a, I mean, as I a, know this because I know you, but the bunk funkers might not because they don't, you are very much, you're into more harmonies you're very much more into like the beach boys you know you liked uh stuff like that you like uh randy newman you love not that there's anything wrong with these bands but i think you would agree i don't think i'm overstepping my boundaries when i say this where your musical tastes probably differed greatly from what most of your contemporaries and your peers were listening to in the 90s would you would you say would you say that's fair yeah, that's fair. I probably didn't even really get into like pop music. Like, uh, I don't know. I guess my parents listened to a lot of like adult contemporary. Uh, that was like the radio station in the town where I grew up played adult contemporary. So that was what I spent a lot of time listening to if it was on the radio. I mean, you got to go back. This is like, true. This is true. This was the radio at the time. You had to um, listen to what was on the radio. And then I got into like pop music, I guess. I don't know, maybe when I was in middle school, okay. uh, which would have been like 
in like um I guess mid to late nineties. So okay. I, I you know, I think by then Nirvana was over. So I think that I just missed the train completely. Right. Like I have some I have some knowledge, but it's pretty limited to be honest with you, uh of of like the grunge era. Um Well so, you're gonna get both sides of the coin here. Bunk yeah. funkers. You're gonna get someone who fucking loves this band and uh read documentary or docu read documentaries. Uh me no me no smart. Um no, no. Who no. uh who read biographies of Kurt who uh, and the band and mm-hmm. listened to all their albums till they just got burnt out. Uh and somebody who wasn't that into them. So but but let's get into it here. Let's let's Nirvana really only graced the world stage, kind of like you said, Andy. It, it, they uh, you you missed them because they were only really here for a brief amount of time. As tragically, you know, frontman Kurt Cobain's life would come to an end via a fatal self-inflicted gunshot wound. Now we are here to possibly bring a theory that will debate that, but that is the general accepted um, scenario. Kurt's right. death shocked the world and the words he penned in his suicide note, a quote of Neil Young's, it's better to burn out than to fade away, were an eerie reminder of how brief, but bright and burning with passion, but brief, we got to experience this band and Kurt's masterful melody and songwriting. Nirvana's influence did not burn out, but without their front man, the music did. It just wouldn't be the same. But one thing that refuses to burn out or fade away is the belief in some theorists' minds that Kurt Cobain did not take his own life. That this rock star, so vital to the cultural 90s zeitgeist, that perhaps he was brought to end via foul play. Even now, 26 years after his death, at the time of this recording, a push to reopen the investigation into the death of Kurt Cobain remains steadfast. But to understand why this death rocked so many people to their core, we gotta understand why his life rocked so many people to their core. So let's let the history hog out of its cage, bunk funkers. But we're gonna dress him in our finest flannels and ripped jeans. Maybe put a cute little uh, wig of it on him, on you know some long messy hair and a regretful tattoo on its wrist to explain Kurt Cobain. And the rise of Nirvana. Art, I look ridiculous. I was actually a real bona fide 90s kid, and I never wore flannel and jeans. Andy, if you don't embody the spirit of the history hog right now, I swear to God, it's off to the slaughterhouse with you. <laughs> Fine. God. Kurt Cobain was born in Aberdeen, Washington on February 20th, 1967. He was the only son of Wendy and Donald Cobain. Kurt was a naturally gifted musician and artist in general from an early age. Being influenced by many members of his family who were musicians and encouraged by his grandmother, who was an artist. At the age of nine, Kurt's parents divorced. And the divorce had a profound impact on young Kurt. His family all noted how the once vibrant young child became withdrawn and reserved. Both of Kurt's parents remarried and started different families, and the young Kurt Cobain was thrown between them both. 
resenting his father for remarrying, adjusting to no longer being an only child, as Kurt now had step-siblings, and, tragically, witnessing the violent domestic abuse his mother endured during her new relationship. All of these experiences shaped and molded Kurt Cobain into the person and performer he would later become. From here on out, Kurt spent the remainder of his youth uh, through teen years acting out in defiance and rebellion. His constant troublemaking became too much for his father, who frequently sent Kurt to go live with friends and other family. During his teen years, Kurt retreated farther and farther away from school and more and more into his artwork and the burgeoning punk music scene in Seattle. This culminated with Kurt dropping out of high school two weeks prior to graduating, which in turn got him kicked out of his mom's house with whom he was living at the time. Kurt couch surfed with friends for a while, but also had brief periods of homelessness, according to him, which included him living under a bridge over the, uh, the Wishka River, an experience that inspired the song Something in the Way. However, later in life, this was revealed to be a form of poetic revisionism, as the muddy banks of the Wishka made it damn near impossible to live under a bridge over them. And look, I know living under bridges. I'm a professional troll, okay? Regardless of Kurt's post-high school careers and relationships with women, uh, in, regardless, uh, sorry, let me say that again. Regardless, Kurt's post-high school careers and relationships with women inspired a multitude of classic Nirvana songs. For example, Kurt's relationship with uh, Bikini Kill member Toby Vale inspired a bunch of songs. Her deodorant, Teen Spirit, even helped in part to inspire Nirvana's biggest hit, Smells Like Teen Spirit. <laughs> Boy, Art, I hope my deodorant, too, can one day uh, inspire some incredible songs. Hmm. Maybe Smells Like Moldy Oatmeal, or maybe my cologne, Smells Like Spoiled Goat's Milk? Hmm. Well, uh... Smells like, uh, well, let's just say if the song doesn't knock him dead, your odor will. <laughs> Anywho, let's change the and topic. And goat's milk is already funky. Can you imagine it's boiled? <laughs> oh, God. Let's change the topic, please, to Nirvana's early days. Now, Kurt had a few bands before Nirvana, and Nirvana itself went by many different names before it ultimately stuck. In fact, uh, shortly after dropping out of high school, Kurt formed a band called Fecal Matter, which I think we can both agree was the better name. Yeah, that really resonates with me. Hard. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Hard. Wow. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he linked up with his longtime high school friend, Chris Novoselic, who would play bass with Kurt on guitar and vocals to form a band, and the two would remain together until Kurt's death. They went by a bunch of names, including Fecal Matter, Skid Row, Ted Ed Fred. Um, the group settled on Nirvana because, of co uh, according to Cobain, quote, I wanted a name that was kind of beautiful or nice and pretty instead of a mean, raunchy puck name like the Angry Samoans, end quote. Kurt and Chris used a bunch of different drummers, but, you know, eventually they recorded their first album as Nirvana. The album was called Bleach, and it was released on June 15th, 1989 by Seattle indie label Sub Pop. The album did, did I? But, you know, it was reviewed quite positively, and I think people who picked up Bleach or heard it on college radio stations could tell this band was onto something. Because, you know, there's some sick tracks on Bleach for sure. 
Well, let's jump ahead here because, God, I'll fucking sit here all day talking about Butch Vig and how, you know, their relationship with him and Sonic Youth and their relationship with the Melvins and yada, yada, yada. So Kurt and Chris got introduced to Dave Grohl, who you have to remember at the time was not the Dave Grohl rock superstar of Foo Fighters that we know. Dave Grohl was just some kid whose band had just broken up and he had just moved to Seattle and he was available to drum. And drum he did. He was a prodigy drummer. But anyway, so Nirvana weren't too happy with Sub Pop's promotion on Bleach and their general, you know, label dicking aroundedness. So they left Sub Pop and they partnered up with a major label to release their next record, their first, you know, obviously their first major label record and the album most recognizable to the mainstream. Nevermind. Released in 1991. And holy shit, did this album blow the fuck up. I mean, Funkfuckers, it's taken every fiber of my being not to let my history hog out of its grunge-loving pen here, but Nirvana's Nevermind is still to this day one of the best-selling albums of all time. I mean, it sold some like 30 million copies. It's certified diamond. And let me tell you, in the opinion of this co-host, this album gets me hard as diamonds because I think it's perfect. It's a perfect album, front to back. All right. Well, while Art goes and pours cold water on his crotch, uh, let me tell you about Nirvana's stardom. With the success of Nevermind, Nirvana was blasted into the mainstream music stratosphere, cementing the end of hair metal and the beginning of the grunge alternative 90s era of rock. Cobain was reluctant about his newfound fame and about how he had been labeled, essentially, the voice of a generation. He felt his vision and expression were being misinterpreted by the media. Kurt had quite a few strong opinions on music and the world if you go back and watch old interviews of him. Anyway, Cobain struggled to reconcile the massive success of Nirvana with his underground roots and vision. But how did Kurt meet Courtney Love? Well, according to a mutual friend, they met at a L7 and Butthole Surfers concert in 1991. L7 and Butthole Surfers... Sounds like a sick sci-fi themed porno. I think I might have seen it before. Uh, anywho, Love began pursuing Cobain hard, and in late 1991, the two had become a couple bonding over mutual interests, including their rampant drug use. On February 24th, 1992, a few days after the conclusion of Nirvana's Pacific Rim tour, Cobain and Love were married on Waikiki Beach in Hawaii. There were objections to their marriage, according to Love. Uh, she was approached by Kim Gordon, effortlessly cool vocalist and bassist for the band Sonic Youth, opposing their union. Regardless, the couple married, and Love was already pregnant with their child. The couple's daughter, Frances Bean Cobain, was born August 18, 1992. Now, Kurt had struggled, his, uh, it struggled with his health for a while. You know, throughout most of his life, Kurt suffered from chronic bronchitis, scoliosis, and an intense physical pain uh, due to an undiagnosed chronic stomach condition. The stomach condition in particular is somewhat debated. Some sources say that his stomach condition was exacerbated by Kurt's heroin abuse. But according to Kurt, he only abused heroin as a means to self-medicate and treat his stomach condition. Regardless, Kurt and Courtney were full-blown drug addicts. Kurt had experimented and used marijuana since his teenage years, um, and through most of his young life, he abused alcohol, weed, and various pills. 
And uh, he wasn't really introduced to heroin until 1986 when a drug dealer friend got him to, uh, to try a little. Cobain's drug use, or abuse, I should say, began to affect the band's performances, their touring, and their music production. All right. I know you Nirvana, you fellow Nirvana lovers out there are probably mad that we skipped over In Utero, you know, In Utero and, and MTV Unplugged and other albums and other events, his beef with Axl Rose, we skipped over all that. So much good stuff there. But if you want a great biography of Nirvana and Kurt's life, check out Christopher Cross's Heavier Than Heaven. It's great. I read it when I was 13. Weird flex, but okay. We get it. You learn to read at age 13, and some of us didn't learn until their late 40s. Big whoop. Jeez. Anyway, Andy, we got a lot of stuff to cover here, so I had to skip that stuff, all right? Quit grilling me on it, bunk funkers. I mean, big whoop. <laughs> so I didn't learn to read till I was 48 years old. Big whoop. I did fine. The point is, you can do it now. I can read. We got to mention the Rome incident here, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. In 1994, Nirvana embarked on a European tour uh, with the final concert being in Munich, Germany on March 1st. Now, this would actually be Nirvana's final live performance, unbeknownst to the band. Cobain was diagnosed with bronchitis and severe laryngitis while on the tour. He flew to Rome, Italy, the next day for medical treatment and was then joined there by his wife, Courtney Love, on March 3rd, 1994. The next morning, Love awoke to find that Cobain had overdosed on a combination of champagne and rofinol, which is a uh, sleep aid and muscle relaxer, banned in the U.S., in fact, as it is often abused by cocaine addicts and used as a date rape drug since it dissolves perfectly in liquids. Cobain was immediately rushed to the hospital and was unconscious the rest of the day. After five days in a hospital, Cobain was released and returned to Seattle. On March 18, 1994, Love phoned the Seattle police informing them that Kurt was suicidal and had locked himself in a room with a gun. The police arrived and confiscated several guns and a bottle of pills from Cobain, who insisted that he was not suicidal, but had locked himself in the room to hide from Courtney Love. Love then arranged an intervention regarding Cobain's drug use on March 25, 1994. The 10 people involved included musician friends, record company execs, and one of Cobain's closest friends, Dylan Carlson. More on him later. The intervention was initially unsuccessful, with an angry Cobain insulting and heaping scorn on the intervention participants and eventually locking himself in the upstairs bedroom. But by the end of the day, Cobain had agreed to go to rehab. Cobain arrived at the Exodus Recovery Center in Los Angeles on March 30th, 1994. While there, Kurt was visited by friends and eventually his daughter Frances, who was only a little over one year old at the time. And this would sadly be the last time she ever saw her father. The following night, Cobain walked outside to have a cigarette and climbed over a six-foot-high fence to leave the facility, which... He had joked earlier in the day would be a stupid feat to attempt. He took a taxi to Los Angeles airport and flew back to Seattle. Most of his close friends and family were unaware of his whereabouts. On April 2nd and 3rd, Cobain was spotted in numerous locations around Seattle. 
On April 3rd, Love contacted private investigator Tom Grant and hired him to find Cobain. So, so, so much more on old Tommy Boy later. On April 8th, Cobain's body was discovered at his Lake Washington Boulevard home by electrician Gary Smith, who had arrived to install a security system. Cobain's body had been lying there for days. The coroner's report estimated Cobain to have died on April 5th, 1994, at the age of 27. A public vigil was held for Cobain on April 10th, 1994, at a park uh, at Seattle Center, drawing approximately over 7,000 mourners. Pre-recorded messages by Novoselic and Love were played at the memorial. Love even read portions of the suicide note to the crowd, crying and chastising Cobain. Dave Grohl described Kurt's death as, quote, probably the worst thing that has happened to me in my life, end quote. And so many Nirvana fans can empathize with that. So now let's get into the real meat and taters of this conspiracy. Why do some theorists believe that Kurt Cobain was murdered and did not commit suicide as we were led to believe? Well, first, let's cover the crime scene. Then we'll uncover the discrepancies about the scene and the case and the investigation. Then we'll cover Tom Grant's slash everyone else's influence on the case. So right off the bat, much evidence of the crime scene wasn't really released until years later. Um, But here is kind of what it looked like based on the photos that were taken then and then released years later. Now, Kurt um, was found dead in the greenhouse room, which it's a little bit of a misnomer. I guess it isn't, but it, it is essentially a large room that is above his home's garage. And it's a, it's a pretty substantial room. Um, there's plenty, like, you know, multiple people could be in there at one time. It wasn't like a small little attic. It was um, it was a pretty large room, and it, it seemed to have actually functioned as somewhat of a greenhouse as there were um, what looked to be like flower beds in there. Kurt was in the middle of the room, lying on his back. His left hand gripped over the barrel of a Remington M11 shotgun. The shotgun was positioned in Kurt's lap. The muzzle of the gun pointing towards his head and the stock towards his feet. The gun was um, upside down, so to speak, meaning that the the trigger was actually facing upwards towards the ceiling and the um, top of the gun, you know, like the barrel and the sights and stuff, those were down, um, facing down into his lap. Kurt was dressed in a button-down shirt over t- a t-shirt, jeans, and Converse shoes. On his wrist was the hospital band from the Ex- Exodus Rehab Center. Kurt's right was a cigar box which housed his quote-unquote heroin kit. And near the box was Kurt's wallet, a lighter, a hat, some cash, cigarettes, and two towels. Near Kurt's left foot was a brown paper bag that included 22 shotgun shells. To his left, a can of Barks root beer, as well as a brown corduroy jacket inside of which was the receipt for the gun and an expelled used shotgun shell. Past those items was the infamous suicide note pinned into a garden bed with a red pen. According to police, there was a stool up against the outside entrance doors, which were French doors, um, blocking it from the inside. So what are some issues theorists find with that? At this point, this all seems like a pretty cut and dry case. 
Before we begin, we should mention that the bulk of the evidence for these theories, uh, as we said before, comes from the work of Tom Grant. Uh, Tom Grant is a private investigator hired by Courtney Love, again, as we mentioned, to track down Kurt after he escaped from rehab. We'll talk more about Tom later, but we're going to summarize a bulk of his findings when looking into this case. And we gotta start with the stool. Boy, if I had a dollar for every time I've said that, I'd be rich. Stool samples are so, so important. But this was a stool for sitting, not a stool from your shitting. So many of the discrepancies with the investigation into Kurt's death come from how the media portrayed it. This is especially the case with the stool. That Cobain put a stool up against the door blocking himself in. The stool being undisturbed shows that no one could have entered the room he was inside and then also reset the stool after leaving, right? Uh, However, Tom Grant showed police photos he had seen from news reports of the doors to the greenhouse room where Kurt died. There are two sets of doors on opposite sides of the room, both French doors, both with small twist locks on the handles, not deadbolts. A twist lock on a handle can easily be turned from the inside and then shut as someone exits and will remain locked. Furthermore, Tom says that there are conflicting notes in the police reports. One report says that there was a stool blocking another set of French doors, while another report says it was blocking the main entrance, preventing access. In Soaked in Bleach, the first responder on the scene, paramedic John Fisk, denies on camera that there was a stool blocking the door. There was no stool. Well, it's not entirely true. There's always a stool in your colon. But in this case, no, there was no sitting stool blocking the main entrance to the room where Kurt died. Well, an argument over the placement of a stool is hardly enough proof that perhaps this guy didn't commit suicide, right? Well, much like the media portrayed it as a suicide, the Seattle Police Department also went into the investigation with the same mindset. The Seattle PD discovered Kurt's body, took photographs of the scene, took reports, and then labeled it a suicide the very same day. And then they made a public announcement that it was a suicide. One of the forensic scientists in the film Soaked in, uh, Soaked in Bleach mentions that uh, he would not make such a claim until all the evidence had been processed. The victimology, the medical legal process, toxicology. Until then it should only be considered a death investigation. No info was gathered about fingerprints, drug levels, and um, and they knew nothing else besides just finding him dead with a shotgun. And furthermore, reports on how someone died, well, they don't come from police. They come from forensics. Tom Grant goes one step deeper. He believes the police were set up and involved as early as from when Courtney sent them a missing persons report. You see, Courtney sent the police a missing persons report under Kurt's mother's name, Wendy O'Connor, a few days prior. In the report, she mentioned the following, that Kurt left rehab, that Kurt had gone missing, and that Kurt purchased a gun. Norm Stamper, the Seattle chief of police at the time of Kurt's death, so this was 1994, is interviewed for the film Soaked in Bleach, and he says flat out, that if police officers connected to this missing persons report with a crime scene, then they would be predispositioned to believe it was a suicide. The photographs taken at the scene have remained to this day in the possession of the Seattle PD. They have only released a few 
and none of those photos show the full scene of the crime. Tom Grant talked to Detective Kirkland at the Seattle Police Department back then. He recorded their conversation over audio tape, and these tapes are frequently played in the film. Kirkland is recorded saying that in the Seattle PD, if a patrol officer feels like a death investigation is probably a suicide, then they call the medical examiner and send it in as a suicide. This really grinds Tom's gears because in proper police work, you don't allow a patrol officer with no homicide experience, that is, forensics experience, to determine what a death is or is not. Detective Kirkland literally says the ME medical, or I should say, quote, the ME medical examiner goes out there. They look at the body and if they're comfortable that it's a suicide, we don't even respond. End quote. Here's some more sus occurrences with the uh, with Kurt's death investigation. Um, Cobain's body was cremated six days after being discovered. They waited 30 days to process the shotgun for fingerprints. They gave Courtney Love the shotgun, and then she subsequently had it melted down. And then they also allowed the greenhouse crime scene, the, the room where Kurt died, to be torn down and destroyed. And the cherry on top? One of the lead detectives on the case was Sergeant Donald Cameron. Cameron later resigned from the force after being accused of helping to cover up the theft of money from a criminal investigation by one of his officers. About $10,000 worth. The chief of police at the time was preparing to fire him for that, and he resigned instead. So at the end of the Soaked and Bleach docudrama, Norm Stamper, the former chief of police of Seattle Police during Kurt's death in 1994, says on camera that if he were the chief of police right now, he would reopen the investigation into the case. So Tom and many theorists believe that this at the very least, should raise a few questions. Perhaps it should sow a tiny seed of doubt. And up in this, you know, up until this point, we haven't even mentioned Kurt. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kurt's toxicology report was pretty wild, my dudes. <laughs> it indicated a heroin blood level of 1.52 milligrams per liter. Uh, for reference, shooting 60 milligrams of heroin would result in a blood morphine level of 0.420 milligrams. Nice. To to reach a morphine blood level of 1.52 milligrams, you would have to inject 225 milligrams of heroin in your blood. That's two and a third needles worth of heroin. It's around three times the amount that would be considered a lethal dosage. Now, according to Max Wallace, an investigative journalist who did his own research into Kurt's death, in 18 years of research of heroin overdoses, they have not found a single case where somebody could have that amount of heroin in their blood and still remain conscious enough to shoot themselves with a shotgun. The effect would have been further exacerbated by Cobain's low body weight and the diazepam in his system, let alone roll down their sleeve put away their heroin kit, and then pick up a shotgun and shoot themselves. They would have been rendered unconscious almost immediately, as this is way, 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 way over a lethal limit for any human. Heroin injected into the veins is available to the body almost immediately. Canadian chemist Roger Lewis gathered together dozens of toxicology studies regarding drug overdoses to try and find comparable cases. Of the 1,526 heroin deaths he found, only 26 had drug levels as high as Cobain, and all of them either died instantly 
or were immediately incapacitated. Furthermore, theorists asks, theorists ask, why would someone pin a suicide note, fill up on that much heroin, and then shoot themselves? Why wouldn't they just let the drug take effect? The film shows two forensic pathologists who state that in their entire careers, they have never seen someone inject themselves with that much heroin and then kill themselves. It's a morbid train of thought, but it's one that is relevant to this investigation. Why would a drug addict, someone whose main drive is to score more drugs, constantly chase the high of their drugs? Why would they kill themselves after using drugs? Sure, drug addicts accidentally or purposefully overdose in order to accidentally or purposefully commit suicide, but it's kind of a one or the other situation. Speaking of the uh, shotgun, um, we got to talk about the shells. As we said, several police reports state that Kurt was found on his back with the shotgun lying in his lap, resting on his crotch. The muzzle of the gun pointing towards his head, the stock towards his feet, the gun being upside down, so to speak, meaning that the trigger was facing upwards and the barrel and the sights and stuff were down towards the floor in his lap. Now, Kurt's left hand had a vice-like grip on the barrel of the shotgun known as a uh, cadaveric spasm, which is a form of muscular stiffening which only occurs in death. Now, this evidence is invaluable to forensic investigation because it shows the precise orientation of the body at the time of death, meaning we can deduce that the body of the victim was like this when they died. However, a shotgun shell, like we said earlier, was found on Cobain's left side. What's the problem with that? I mean, there was a gun. There's a shotgun shell. Well, it makes no sense because the exit chamber of the shotgun found with Kurt, the Remington M11, the exit chamber's on the right side. Now, assuming the gun was fired in a upside-down position while Kurt sat on the floor with the barrel in his mouth. That's, that's assuming that. But according to Seattle PD... Cobain fired the gun right side up, meaning the exit chamber would have been on the left and the trigger would have been towards the floor instead of towards the ceiling, right? Now, uh, the shotgun's fired. It exits the shell. Then they say the gun flipped around, literally did a 180, landing in the upside down position. Now, Tom Grant says this scenario is uh, literally likely impossible because shotguns don't uh, rotate 180 degrees when you fire them. Furthermore, uh, the type of gun that Kurt bought was a 20-gauge shotgun uh, that it, it apparently also had very low recoil because, in and this is, various sources kind of say this, he wanted to buy a gun to, you know, potentially disarm or hurt a intruder but not necessarily kill somebody. And it also had very low recoil. Anyway. Shotguns don't rotate 180 degrees when you shoot them. It also completely ignores the cadaveric grip at the moment of death, which would have probably locked that shotgun in place, disabling it from spinning 180 degrees, which they don't do. And in order for that scenario to take place, the one laid out by the Seattle P PD, Kurt would have had to bend his wrist in a way that is almost anatomically impossible. So... For example, Bunk Funkers, if you take your left hand, you make a fist. Cobain's middle knuckles, you look at your middle knuckles there, those would have had to have moved down 
and then slightly past his forearm for the 180 degree spin to take place if the gun was fired right side up. So we can kind of surmise the gun was not fired right side up. Well, what if the shell uh, exited on the right side and then ricocheted off something and then bounced over to his left side? But based on what we saw from the meager photos, the meager few photos released by the Seattle PD, well, it shows that there was no obstruction on Cobain's right side capable of doing that. Which begs the question, was Kurt alone in the greenhouse when the trigger was pulled? How did that how did that used shotgun shell get on his left side when the exit chamber of the gun was fired upside down and the gun was fired upside down and the exit chamber was on the right side? Let's transition to some questions raised about the note found pinned into a garden bed on the other side of the room from Kurt. We'll call this note his suicide note. However, that's the very question that theorists are asking. Did Kurt actually pen this note? Soaked in Bleach plays another audio tape of Rosemary Carroll reading Kurt's suicide note and immediately deducing it as a forgery. Now, Rosemary Carroll was a longtime friend of Kurt's and Courtney's, as well as their personal attorney and the godmother of their child. We'll bring up some sus activity on her end in a little bit. But her being so close to Kurt and Courtney and her immediately saying on tape that she thinks it was forged is something worth considering. Now, Tom says uh, that he tricked Courtney into giving him a copy of the suicide note because at this time, no one had ever read it. Courtney read portions of it at the vigil for Kurt, but at this time, it was not released to the public. However, years later, the note would be released in full, as would a treasure trove of Kurt's private journals. Anyway, Tom tricked Courtney into giving him the suicide note back in 1994. Otherwise, he believes... She never intended for anyone to ever read it. <coughs> Until uh, 2002, when she and her then-boyfriend got into a legal dispute with the members of Nirvana over the release of the journals and greatest hits collection that would debut the never-released song, You Know You're Right. <coughs> oh, God. <coughs> Ooh, oh, sorry. I had a frog in my throat. <coughs> anyway, Rosemary Carroll also had a backpack belonging to Courtney Love full of papers, which included pages with what looked like someone attempting to copy Kurt's handwriting based off his private journals, like traced forgeries of his words from journals he wrote. The film brings on a forensic document examiner who cross-referenced the suicide note with the pages of traced letters found in Courtney's backpack. The bottom portion of the note reads, quote, Please keep going, Courtney, for Francis. For her life, which will be so much happier without me. I love you. I love you. End quote. This portion of the note is in a very, very distinctly different style and much less composed than the rest of the letter. The forensic examiner says it's entirely possible that somebody forged the bottom portion of the note. Handwriting is one aspect, but what about the subject matter of the note? In the note, Kurt refers to his, quote, burning, nauseous, end quote, stomach, and talks at length about his plans to leave the music business. However, both of these claims contradict other statements Kurt made previously. Kurt had apparently been cured of his chronic stomach ailment in 1993 after finally having it properly diagnosed. 
Turns out a stomach nerve had been pinched due to his scoliosis, and once diagnosed, proper medicine was prescribed, and Kurt was apparently cured. He's even quoted in multiple interviews mentioning how good he felt now that his stomach was fixed. He even mentions eating a whole big pizza and how tasty it was and how good it felt to keep the whole thing down without throwing up. Oh, oh yeah, Kurt, come on. Don't leave us guessing. What was on this pie, huh? What kinds of cheese? You got the mats? Huh? You got some Parmesan? Parmigiano-Reggiano? A little uh, Asiago? Huh? Huh? You got some uh, some uh, pecorino, huh? What was the sauce? Oh, you got a sweet sauce? You got a spicy sauce? Oh, you got like a, a white sauce on there? Mm, mm, oh, yeah. Uh, is it getting hot in here, Art? Woof! Woof, woof, woof! Woof! I got to splash some water on my crotch now. It's hotter than a pizza oven. But, uh, whew. Anywho. Kurt had also made statements in an AOL chat room message. Hey, remember those? Uh, commenting on how Nirvana was going to start working on a new album soon, and he was excited to get back into it. Forensic linguists, forensic linguists also broke down how the first part of the suicide note talks at length about Kurt's relationship to music, and only the last four lines mention his relationship to his family, his daughter and his wife. And in a morbid sense, the last four lines of the note are what one typically thinks they will find in a suicide note. For a guy who cherished his family and his daughter, don't you think he'd mention them a few more times than right at the end of a note? So those are the main discrepancies with the believed story of Kurt Cobain's death as presented by Tom Grant and Max Wallace and others in the docudrama film Soaked in Bleach. Let's shift gears a moment and let's talk a little bit about the various players in the story who do come up in the movie. Namely, Dylan Carlson, Rosemary Carroll, and Courtney Love. Dylan Carlson was a very close friend of Kurt Cobain. In fact, they were roommates at one point. Dylan, like Kurt, struggled with heroin addiction. And his actions during Tom Grant's investigation into Kurt Cobain, both before and after he was found to be dead, they raised some questions for theorists. So for one, on Wednesday, March 30th, 1994, nine days before Kurt's body was found dead, Dylan and Kurt went to buy the shotgun that would later fatally wound Kurt. Now, Kurt couldn't purchase it himself due to that uh, incident that we mentioned earlier where the police came and confiscated all his guns and some pills and stuff, and also probably other various reasons. So Dylan bought him for him, Dylan bought it for him and registered it in in Dylan's name. The shotgun uh, was supposedly bought for home protection, like we mentioned, as Kurt's house had recently had a burglary incident. Now let's fast forward a scooch here to later in Tom's investigation into what was then a missing Kurt Cobain. Uh, we're jumping around here a bit, but we'll mention this later, but Courtney Love hired Tom Grant a private investigator, to search for Kurt Cobain after he escaped from rehab. So that happens, and then a few days later, this is where we're at. On Wednesday, April 6th, 1994, Tom traveled to Seattle to get better surveillance on the Lake Washington property and to check out some better spots to try and find Kurt. Courtney Love suggests that Tom link up with Dylan Carlson because he knew all the quote-unquote hangouts and knew the house pretty well. You know, he had been there. Him and Kurt were best friends. 
Now, according to the film, Dylan denies that Kurt was suicidal. And he says, Kurt is handling the pressures of stardom well. He admits it hasn't been easy for him, but he's handling it well. Now, he and Curtly, Curly, he and Courtney have their problems, and Dylan says he doesn't understand why he married her, him being Kurt. Dylan then confirms that the overdose in Rome was indeed an accident and not a suicide attempt, as was then being reported in the media. Dylan also mentions how he bought the shotgun for Kurt. So, uh, at this point, you know, it kind of seems like Dylan is a reliable source of info for Tom's investigation. And that continued to the next day, Thursday, April 7th, 1994. Dylan and Tom are chatting. You know, they're uh, they're talking about where Kurt might be, and um, uh, he denies Courtney's claim that Kurt only stayed in the best hotels. He instead says that Kurt would stay in seedy, shitty fucking motels along Seattle's Aurora Strip where they would live in these motels for weeks just doing heroin and eating potato chips. But this is where things kind of take a turn for old Dylan. Tom mentions that at this point in their communications, Courtney would call, talk to Dylan, who would then talk to Tom. Dylan would call Courtney and then relay Courtney's info slash instructions to Tom, which is honestly... It's a little sus, you know, it's a little sus, but it's nothing wild. Courtney wants them to go back to the the Lake Washington home to look for the shotgun again and that it was probably in a quote-unquote hidden compartment, which Courtney had failed to mention the first time they were there Um, and failed to mention over the course of... uh, the four days that she had ha- had had been hiring Tom to search for Kurt. So anyway, Dylan and Tom go to the house during the night during a heavy rainstorm to uh, to scope out the house yet again. They literally go inside the house where Kurt's, unbeknownst to them, Kurt's dead body is lying in the greenhouse above the garage. But at this point, uh, you know, that's the only place they don't go check. The next day an electrician found Kurt's dead body. Now, why wouldn't Dylan or Courtney Love, whom he was in constant communication with, mention to Tom to check the greenhouse room? Both Dylan and Courtney had been inside the home and were well aware of the greenhouse. Why would neither of them ever mention to go check that room? Now, Tom, the next day when Kurt's body was found, He was rightly pretty fucking annoyed at Dylan. He had no clue what the greenhouse was, and he had no clue why Dylan wouldn't suggest to go look there. Well, according to Tom, Dylan made it sound like the greenhouse was just this small, rinky-dink little room, practically a closet, where they stored random shit above the garage. You know, like a small attic where no one would ever actually go inside, which we now know from the crime scene photos is complete and total horse shit. There's ample room in that greenhouse. It's literally a huge room the size of their garage above their garage. Tons of fully fully grown humans, adult humans, (laughs) could be standing in there at at, at one time. Yeah, you could fit a lot of adult men in there. Yeah. Apparently... Dylan says Courtney didn't mention to him to check the greenhouse. However, 
Rosemary Carroll is also heard on an audio recording saying that she, Rosemary, heard Dylan talk to Courtney on the phone. And during this conversation, Courtney specifically said to check the greenhouse. This contradicts Dylan's earlier claim that Courtney didn't mention to check the greenhouse. And I don't think this is my pants, but something smells fishy. I do have a fish in my pants, I guess. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I'm all about that bass. Critics have frequently asked how Tom, a PI, or as I like to say, private dick, with a stellar record, could go search Kurt's house and not find him lying in the greenhouse. But according to Tom and multiple journalists, the greenhouse is difficult to spot unless you're specifically looking for it. Tom also asked Dylan if there was anything else they should check, and Dylan said no. And allegedly five different people, including Seattle PD, had been to the house searching for Kurt during daylight and failed to see Kurt lying dead in the greenhouse. So apparently this fucking greenhouse must be camouflage green because it's blending in with the environment. Obviously, this info has to be taken at face value because, like we said, Courtney had allowed the greenhouse to be torn down and destroyed after Kurt's death. Good move, Courtney. Later... After Kurt's body is discovered, Tom tries to talk to Dylan again and get some answers and clear up some questions he has. Tom flies out to Seattle to interview Dylan and Courtney. Tom showed up at the time they said to meet, and he waits for a few hours, and Dylan is nowhere to be seen. Courtney leaves for an hour and suddenly comes back with Dylan. Tom is like, WTF? Why didn't you tell me you were here? But Dylan was high on drugs, most likely heroin and passed out moments later. Tom was unable to question him. The film mentioned that Dylan was a heroin addict and Kurt was his main supplier. After Kurt's death, Courtney became his supplier and she apparently paid his rent for many years and supplied the money for his drug addiction. These scenarios with him and Courtney have left many theorists going, hmm, while squinting suspiciously. You know, hmm. <laughs> Now, Rosemary Carroll, as we mentioned, was a close friend, attorney, and godmother to the child of Kurt and Courtney. And while she had helped Tom in his investigation up to this point, well, she's not without her own suspicious behavior. After Tom started to go public with his findings and his flat-out belief that the investigation into Kurt Cobain's death should be reopened, uh, Rosemary Carroll started denying providing assistance and information to Tom. Problem is, Rosemary was proven to have helped Tom as evidenced by hours of Tom's audio recordings of their phone calls. Tom also has also allegedly received a letter from Rosemary Carroll's office threatening a lawsuit and criminal prosecution against him if he continued to use the recordings he had of her convos. Now, is this suspicious? Or is this just general lawyer trying to save their assery? Either way, it's part of the whole enchilada on this one. And where would this enchilada be without talking about Courtney Love? Boy, oh boy, so much can be said of Courtney. But one thing's for sure. There are some wild audio recordings that Tom has of her. Oh, get your mind out of the gutter, bunk funkers. I meant in relation to her hiring of Tom Grant and his investigation. Jeez, you sick bunk fuckers. To say that Courtney's behavior was bizarre would probably be an understatement. But hey, these were grunge rock stars of the early 90s. They were bizarre people. 
They wore anti-disestablishmentarianism on their sleeves. They wore opposition to the withdrawal of state support or recognition from an established church, especially the Anglican church in the 19th century England? Uh, duh, art? Jeez. Look into Nirvana's lyrics, man. They're literally all about the Anglican church in 19th century England. Oh, uh, except Rape Me. That one is about the modern-day Catholic church. Anywho, Tom's recordings of Courtney showcase how, well, self-centered, nonchalant, I guess, she was with her missing husband, Kurt. Uh, Let's backtrack a little here. How did Tom get involved with Courtney? Uh, So as we kind of alluded to, on Sunday, April 3rd, 1994, five days before Kurt's body was found, and coincidentally Easter Sunday, Tom and his colleague were dealing with a client when the phone rang. It was Courtney Love. Tom thinks that Courtney called him out of desperation, seeing his ad in the yellow pages. Boy, remember those, my fellow boomers? Where have the phone books gone? And not many private investigators were working on Easter Sunday, so she got Tom. Courtney mentions the ordeal about how she wants Tom to track her missing husband, Kurt. Then she allegedly starts crying and says she thinks Kurt wants a divorce and that Kurt left her a note in Rome uh, that said he's leaving her. Tom says the subject of divorce came up a lot in subsequent meetings with Courtney, and he even has audio clips of Courtney talking about how she would win a custody battle of their daughter, quote, in a second, end quote, if they got a divorce. Tom says that Courtney mentioned she believed Kurt may have been unfaithful and possibly having an affair with Kristen Pfaff, uh, which is the bass player for her band Hole, or with his drug dealer, Caitlin. Courtney also allegedly mentions that she planted a story in a local newspaper saying that she OD'd and was in the hospital so that Kurt would get scared and call her, which is a very sensible way to get your missing husband's attention. You know, I tried this with my wife one time, Art. I planted a story in a local paper that I overdosed so that my wife would get worried about me and come looking for me. But I guess I kind of forgot about the part where I needed to be a famous 90s rock star. Oh, and that I needed to go missing first. I guess, and also the paper just printed the headline, local asshole spreads lies so wife will pay attention to him. Hmm. I made a a few few mistakes on that one. Yeah, maybe a few. Andy, you and I both know your best tactic for getting someone's attention is just being the loudest person in the room, okay? You're not really a (laughs) plant of story in... (laughs) You're not really... Too right you are, Art. You're not really a plant a story in the newspaper kind of guy. Oh, no, no, no. I'm just an obnoxious idiot. <laughs> Jesus. So anyway, the film uh, also shows some audio recordings of Courtney mentioning that she has a record coming out in a week. She states, quote, all publicity is good publicity to agree to a degree, unless you're Michael Jackson, end quote. Oh, boy. <laughs> Courtney Love, which is, you know, that's a strange, very self-centered thing to talk about with your uh, private investigator you hired to find your missing world famous husband. Don't you think? Um, <laughs> Courtney then asks Tom what she should do. Should she confirm the fake story she planted in a local newspaper about her ODing to the Associated Press? A natural question to ask. 
Then there are audio recordings of Courtney working through the process of, well, what would happen in either scenario if with the, you know, with the fake OD story, if she did confirm it, she says, well, I could confirm it and then always deny it and then say that Kurt left me and it caused me to have a nervous breakdown. And then it appeared that I attempted suicide. Here's a quote, quote, then it shows that there's no drugs involved. All the sympathy goes to me. How's that for a spin? End quote. Then, again, during a convo with the private investigator hired to help find her missing husband, she says, quote, selfishly, it would help sell records, end quote. You know, there are also audio recordings of Courtney Love where she explains how she's mad that Kurt was willing to give up nine to ten million dollars because he didn't want to play Lollapalooza that year. A lot of great, a lot of great stuff. Yeah. Now. We don't know if Courtney Love has ever been an example of what you should definitely do or say when talking to a private investigator about your missing husband. Um, Or we don't even know if Courtney Love has ever been an example of what you should do in any situation. But (laughs) but, but despite that, there's more suspicious comments involving the Rome incident. So, as we mentioned, the Rome incident was where Kurt accidentally OD'd on Rohypnol with uh, champagne in Rome, Italy. After Kurt's body was found, there are audio recordings of Courtney talking to Tom about a note he left for her in Rome. Courtney is saying that the detectives gave her back the note Kurt left in Rome and the one from Washington. And in her words, the detective told her to destroy, quote unquote, destroy the note because the information wasn't, quote unquote, nice as it talked about getting a divorce. It's important to mention here that Kurt and Courtney had a prenup, which would have entitled Courtney to very little. When Kurt died, she inherited a literal fortune in future royalties. Anyway, MTV News. Remember that? Boomers? Kurt Loder? You remember him? Anyway, MTV News originally reported that Kurt drank some uh, champagne while also on a prescription painkiller sleep aid called Rohypnol. And this caused him to go into an accidental, keyword here is accidental, drug coma. As soon as Kurt was found dead, Courtney started saying that the Rome incident was a suicide attempt, saying that Kurt took up to 60 pills to attempt to kill himself. Investigative journalist Max Wallace contacted the doctor in Rome who treated Kurt, Dr. Galetta, who quote-unquote categorically denied that it was a suicide attempt and that there were not 60 pills in Kurt's stomach. At the time of the incident, both Kurt and Courtney said it was an accident and the doctor confirmed it. Eventually, after Kurt was found dead and Tom had been doing his own investigation for some time, he turned on his client. Tom sent a letter to Courtney stating that he felt the, quote, circumstances of your husband's death to be highly suspicious, end quote, and that he was going to keep working on the case free of charge, but that he suspected Courtney of her involvement in Kurt's death and was going to continue with or without her involvement in the case. Now, After receiving the letter, Courtney still kept in contact with Tom. She called him and said that she felt Callie. uh, We should probably mention here, as we didn't bring up Callie earlier, Callie was a live-in nanny uh, to um, Kurt and Courtney. Literally lived in the Lake Washington home where um, Kurt was found dead. He literally lived there and was possibly visited by Kurt in between the time he was last seen 
and the time he was found dead. That's Callie. Courtney calls Tom and says that she feels like Callie probably knows something. That, and then she and Tom both agree that he knew something, but you know they didn't know what he knew just yet. Courtney says she thinks he may have heard a gunshot as he was, after all, literally inside the house with Kurt's corpse. Tom believes that Callie probably came across Kurt's body before the electrician did, and Tom really wanted to ask him some questions if that was the case. Tom tells Courtney flat out that all he wants is a copy of the coroner's report, which is legally property of Courtney Love. The coroner report is, you know, it is federally and legally protected. It is it is property of Courtney Love. Um, and the other thing Tom wants is for Callie to come to L.A., take a polygraph test. Courtney mentions she's heading to L.A. in a week or two um, for some business and promises she'll bring the coroner's report to Tom in person. Courtney never brought him the report. Courtney and the media played into each other as well. The media at the time was very influential in spreading the narrative spun by love. The media was fed this the media was fed the suicide version and ran with it, and the story got so big that any questions of it were usually turned down. That Cobain put a stool up against the door blocking himself in, took some more drugs, and shot himself in the head with a shotgun. The damage being so extensive that he could only be identified by fingerprints. The film shows paramedic John Fisk again saying that he had been to numerous self-inflicted gunshot wound crime scenes and that shotguns do indeed cause serious damage, frequently rendering victims unrecognizable via the face. But Kurt's head was neither damaged, quote, nor was it grossly deformed or badly damaged, end quote. Tom brings up how the Seattle PD opened Kurt's wallet found on the scene, took out his driver's license, and took a photo for evidence. But Tom mentions that the media portrayed this as Kurt leaving his wallet and ID out for people to recognize him after his fatal suicide. Tom mentions also a discrepancy involving Kurt Cobain's suicide note, that the only people who had access to the note were him, Courtney, and the police. However, an article in Us Weekly reported a line from the note as saying, quote, I can't live my life like this any longer, end quote. Well, Tom checked the suicide note and no such line exists. So who did they get that quote from? Could it have been Courtney? Now, we've talked a lot about Tom Grant, but we haven't even mentioned who he is yet and his influence in this case. Tom Grant is essentially king of the sleuths. Mm -hmm. Like when Tom goes to the dentist and they're like, is something wrong with your tooth? He's like, no, my sleuth. Yeah, is Tom Grant's favorite baseball player Babe Ruth? No, Babe Sleuth. When Tom does his civic duty, does he vote in a voting booth? No, he goes in a voting sleuth. When he orders a drink and needs a dry liquor, does he get vermouth? No, he gets for sleuth. When Tom sees a bunch of teens spray painting traditional forensic pathology sucks dicks in an alleyway, does he say that such behavior is uncouth? No, it's unsleuth. Mm-hmm. You get the picture. I mean, I hope you do. You get it at this point, right? Tom Grant is a former L.A. County Sheriff's Officer turned private investigator. Tom is allegedly known to be a very clean-cut P.I. who, even if his clients hire him to investigate something, uh, he will turn them in if he believes they are an accomplice to a crime. Maybe and I guess if you're hiring Tom Grant. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, hey, I, he proved he kept his money where his mouth is, you know, 
he feels like uh, Courtney Love, his client, was part of the problem, uh, part of this crime, and he turned on her. Now, paraphrasing here, but um, in his own words, hiring Tom is not like hiring an attorney. He's not there to protect you as his client. He's there to find the truth. He's there to be a sleuth. The truth. The sleuth. You can't handle the sleuth. (laughs) The whole sleuth and nothing but the sleuth. Tom has also received a lot of flack for his claims and is quoted in Soaked in Ble- the Soaked in Bleach movie as saying, quote, when people call me a conspiracy theorist, I take it as an insult because I know what they mean by it, end quote. Oh. Oh. Okay. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, c- cool. Thanks, Tom. I guess. Yeah. It's, it's a big insult. Yeah, like, I mean, what you mean, you take it as an insult that people think that you're a handsome Chad? <laughs> I don't get it. Anyway, the book of this research comes from Tom, and it is most clearly synthesized in the docudrama Soaked in Bleach, directed by Benjamin Statter. Now, whether Tom disagrees with the conspiracy theorist label or not, he's found himself at the epicenter of the Kurt Cobain murder theory. (laughs) His treasure trove of archived audio recordings with Courtney Love and others involved in the case who were close to Kurt are invaluable to the idea that the case needs to be reopened. They're honestly all we got at this point. As we mentioned, everything other than that coroner's report and the crime scene photos have been destroyed. The gun is gone. The, the, the crime scene has been destroyed. Literally, the photo, the coroner's report, and these audio recordings are all we got. And whether he keeps those recordings in a heart-shaped box, we don't know. Tom outlines the last official timeline of Kurt Cobain before his death. Here it is. Wednesday, March 30th, 1994. Nine days before Kurt's body was discovered. Kurt and Dylan buy a shotgun registered in Dylan's name. Kurt then flies from Seattle to L.A. Thursday, March 31st, 1994. Kurt enters the Exodus Rehab Center in L.A. Their nanny, Jackie Ferry, brings Kurt's daughter, Frances Bean, to visit him. Courtney Love made 13 unanswered calls to Kurt at the rehab center. Friday, April 1st, 1994. Kurt boards Delta Flight 788 to Seattle, choosing not to reunite with his wife, Courtney, who was only 10 minutes away uh, from the rehab center. Saturday, April 2nd, 1994, Kurt arrives in Seattle at 1247 a.m. According to Callie, Kurt visits him and his girlfriend, Jessica Hopper, in Callie's bedroom at Kurt's Lake Washington home. Around 7 a.m. on Saturday, Callie claims he saw Kurt for the last time. Phone records indicate that Courtney speaks to Callie eight times on April 2nd. Courtney did not reveal that Kurt had been seen on Saturday when she hired Tom Grant on April 3rd. Tom's work and the work of others we've mentioned, such as Max Wallace, leads them to believe that Cobain was not killed by a hair, by heroin dose. They suggest that the heroin was used to incapacitate Cobain before the final shotgun blast was administered by the perpetrator. 
Now, some theorists take this a step further. Based off the info presented that Courtney Love, knowing her husband Kurt was going to leave her, knowing that due to their prenup she would lose an insurmountable amount of wealth and royalties for the rest of her life and her daughter, used either or a combination of Dylan Carlson and Callie, known heavy drug addicts, to help kill Kurt Cobain sometime between April 3rd and April 8th. Based off the evidence at the crime scene, they believe Kurt was either heavily drugged or given a large dose of heroin than he anticipated and then shot in the head while making it look like a suicide. The Kurt Cobain murder theory is not without its skeptics. Many, including most of Kurt's bandmates and former manager Danny Goldberg, have flat out denied the theory. The local Seattle judiciary system also seems to disbelieve the theory. In 2015, a Seattle judge dismissed a lawsuit made against the city to release the crime scene photos of Kurt's body. And while these photos have never been released, it is important to note that the judge threw the case out on procedural grounds. The crime scene photos are the real big sticking point for a lot of folks involved with this theory. Seattle PD have re-reviewed the photos in recent times, and according to police spokeswoman Renee Witt, there were no new findings and the case is not being reopened, contrary to some media reports. The detective, quote, dug up the files and had another look, and there was nothing new, end quote. There's also some necessary info to hear when discussing the toxicology report that Grant, Wallace, and others involved with the theory cite. Apparently, they have used the dosage reported in the Seattle Post Intelligencer, not the actual autopsy report, and may not have the correct figure. The kicker is the Seattle Police cannot release the bona fide report to the media because reports and records of autopsies are confidential and protected under state and federal law. There's some debate over the claims over what or what not a drug addict with Kurt's tolerance levels could or could not do. As Grant and company claim, someone of Kurt's size intaking that amount of heroin would render them unconscious and or kill them immediately. Therefore, there's no way they could then put away their heroin neatly and then shoot themselves with a gun. Some argue that tolerance levels amongst drug addicts are not particularly well understood, so it's hard to make any definite claims one way or the other about how long Cobain could have remained conscious. In 2014, the Seattle police confirmed that Cobain had indeed taken a huge lethal overdose, but argued his tolerance levels were so high he was able to remain conscious long enough to shoot himself. If true, this would make Cobain's case virtually unique in medical literature. Soaked in Bleach, uh, the film, is by no means a perfect film without its flaws, right? When uh, While the evidence in it is captivating, there are some suspicious grievances brought up about its, uh, its messages. This mostly relates to how the film edited the words and answers given by forensic experts that it showcased. Now, many of the forensic experts showcased in the film, such as forensic pathologist Vernon J. Gerberth, forensic linguist Carol E. Chasky, forensic document examiner Heidi Harrelson, and paramedic slash first responder to the crime scene John Frisk, all had issues with how the film, uh, the film's editing portrayed their answers. In interviews following the film's release, many have said that the producers asked upwards of 40 questions pertaining to proper procedure in the field of forensics, all while trying to kind of coerce them into the belief that Kurt was murdered. Their lengthy interviews 
were then edited down or combined with animated graphics to misconstrue what they actually said. So, for example, in an interview on April 6th, 2016, with the Mercer Island reporter, paramedic John Frisk states, quote, he reiterated to the producers that he still believes the case remains a suicide, end quote. Vernon Gerberth had a similar sentiment in a Facebook post he made in 2016, where he states he, quote, was not happy that the producers made it appear that I agreed with their homicide theory, end quote. And he further states, quote, I had made it quite clear that I believed that Kurt Cobain took his own life, end quote. Further issues into Tom Grant's working relationship with these experts comes from forensic handwriting expert Sheila Lowe. Tom contacted Sheila at 3 a.m. asking her to examine some handwriting in the Cobain matter. <laughs> Not like that, though. I mean, I know that's that's normally code for some kind of booty call, but in this case, yeah, that's it was legitimately what he what he wanted. That's what most people say. Like, what were you what were you doing out at 2:30 in the morning? Oh, I needed to uh, have a forensic documents examiner examine some handwriting. <laughs> he wanted to take these uh, this evidence to the police the very next day, and for some reason, I guess he waited until 3 a.m. As they had, you know, as they had worked together in the past, Lowe decided to actually accept the job despite the you know bizarre hours of operation, and even forego the usual down payment that she requires from clients. Um, Tom had her compare several handwritings to the Cobain suicide letter to determine whether Kurt or Courtney wrote it. It was her professional opinion that the note was genuine and written by Cobain after she found better samples. That's, that's a key point. After she found better samples than the bad quality faxes that Grant sent her. Her first opinion on the bad quality faxes note matter was inconclusive. Lowe explained that the apparent differences in the last four lines in the note are suggestive of strong emotion and or drugs slash alcohol and not necessarily a different writer. In her opinion, the note looked like the handwriting of a depressed person. According to Lowe, Tom Grant never paid her for her work. One of the biggest questions in the Kurt Cobain murder theory is, was Kurt suicidal? And perhaps that's an apropos question to ask when discussing whether a person did in fact commit suicide or not. Makes sense. But the issue comes when theorists and or skeptics on both sides of the argument try to deduce the mental well-being of a person, especially a now deceased person, from the point of view of their friends and relatives. Films like Soaked in Bleach and other pro-murder theory media point to friends of Kurt Cobain's and ask, did you think he was suicidal? And find folks who will say, no way. And they will also look at past interviews of Kurt where he, again, will state how happy he is. Skeptics, on the other hand, say that his suicide was plausible given his alleged bipolar disorder, an alleged history of suicide in two family members, and crippling drug addiction, looming divorce, and weight of the entire 90s music rock scene resting on his shoulders. Tragically, in many cases where someone takes their own life, the ones closest to them may have no clue. So was Kurt Cobain suicidal? We truly can't answer that, but make these make of these statements what you will. Well, bunk funkers, this was one grungy, grimy, greasy whole enchilada. But a whole enchilada it was nonetheless. What do you make of the theory that Kurt Cobain was murdered? Was it a ploy by someone close to Kurt? Or... Was it as we've always known, 
that Kurt Cobain tragically took his own life in the greenhouse room of his Lake Washington home. Well, one thing's for sure. It's better to bunk out than to fade away. Hey, welcome back, Bunk Funkers. That was our research of Kurt Cobain's murder theory. Panda Royal Tea! Um, Another good one. <laughs> yeah, that was great. What Nirvana songs do you know? Um, I know like only bits and pieces of them. Like Smells Like Teen Spirit. I think everybody knows that one, okay. right? Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, Rape Me a Little. What a, that's a funny way I to mean say, that song was v- weird way to say very it. controversial yeah very controversial. and that's what he wanted out of that song yeah you know I read that, uh, Heart Shaped uh, Box you've probably heard Heart Shaped Box right no I don't know that one you never heard that one what about Come As You Are <laughs> I mean I'm familiar with the title but I don't know anything beyond that okay All Apologies that one gets radio play Come As You Are and all apologies, I always hear on the radio. Um, you know, I might know some of them. I don't know the names, too. So, God, I hear them on, like, the classic rock station, too, which is insane. Yeah. I mean. I think of uh, Nirvana as classic rock, but it's almost 30, 30 years, years old at ago. this point. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You're old. Um, can I just say this at the top here? Yeah, say what you want to say. Okay. I alluded to this in the intro. Mm-hmm. I don't know who controls the rights to Nevermind. I think at this point it's Francis, his daughter. Yeah. Actually controls like the bulk of Kurt Cobain's estate. Right. I think she hit a certain age and was like in Kurt's will, but I don't know if it's her. I don't know if it's somebody else. Okay. But I'm going to say this. I was listening to a ton of Nirvana when I was researching this. Yeah. Put the original recordings on Spotify, you fucks. Oh. Okay? There's like eight fucking versions of Nevermind on there. I don't need them, Andy. Give me the original album as it was recorded. None of this remastered, deluxe remastered bullshit. Give me the originals. You know? Yeah. Isn't that annoying? Yeah. In the music industry where they feel the need to like remaster shit all the time it's like dude just give me the album that i grew up and i liked that you released and it's fucking good it's good it's it's fine there's nothing wrong with it yeah or give me both options at the very least you know uh as a as a beach boys fan i can relate to this a lot because you know that's you talk about a catalog that's been released and re-released and like there's multiple mixes of things not every mix is a good mix you know when they go back and remaster something uh sometimes i mean this is this is not applicable for nirvana but sometimes you just want to listen to the mono recordings you know like i want to sometimes hear it the way that 
they intended it to be heard when they made it. So I'm I'm on board with you. Like I love to have access to the original recordings. Although I will say that yeah. some remasterings are very very well done. Um, yeah, some people who are geniuses at at that kind of stuff do touch things up really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I can't I can't say that all uh, that all like remastering attempts or new mixes of things are bad, but you know, sometimes you do just want to, they're not always the best version though. No. Well, Andy, what, I mean, where are you at here? I mean, okay. Like there's so much tension right now. There's so much tension. The bunk bunkers can cut it. The tension is so thick. It is like a big old piece of famous Seattle cheesecake. Seattle famous for its cheesecake, baby. Ooh, Seattle, the Big Apple. So famous for its cheesecake, Andy. The tension between you and I right now is so thick, it's like a cheesecake. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, the bunk funkers want to know where we're at with this one because, like we said up top, if you listen to the the intro, which you probably didn't, and that's okay, <laughs> but the, if you the did, statistics you show you probably did. He said... <laughs> statistically yes statistically most of you did not um that this was a topic that we had both had some prior knowledge of and we both had prior positively facing uh like like positive plausibility um uh scale scale leanings yeah does that hold up, Andy? Well, I think that's that's a good way to, to start off because, you know, I'm coming at this, again, not from... You're a Nirvana super fan. I'm, I'm a Nirvana neophyte. Uh, I, I know very little. And my initial before doing any research was like, oh, yeah, you know, Kurt Cobain committed suicide, but like Courtney Love really did it, right? <laughs> like that's how I approached it was that... That's what people think is that Courtney Love really did it. I mean, I didn't know anything beyond. You thought that, that was part of the part of the uh, popular part of the whole thing. Like you thought that was part of the popular narrative. Part of the whole thing, yeah. That he that it's that it's a very suspicious suicide, at the very least. Yeah, uh, and that Courtney Love's involved. Um, so, I came into that with that mindset. Um, after the whole thing, like all the research and stuff. I'm pretty conflicted on a lot of points of it. Okay. Um, okay. But, and, I, and I'm going to say this right up at the top. Something's up with this, okay? It's not. Yes. Something's up. Yeah. At the end of the day, was it a suicide? Andy. Maybe. <laughs> but not, not in the way it's portrayed is what I'm going to say. That's what I'll say up at the top. And I'm glad that guy Here's you the wound thing. up. <laughs> they should call this the fucking Swiss cheese theory because there's so many holes. <laughs> and it's a little and funky. And I'm not talking Courtney Love's shitty band hole, which, by the way, I think Kurt probably wrote most of their fucking hits. Man, how many people have heard, how many people have seen Courtney Love's shitty band hole? <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, you know, oh, I had heard that too, Art, as a possible motive for Courtney Love to want Kurt Cobain to die 
is that as Courtney herself mentioned, Hole had an album coming out not long after Kurt's death. And there was some uh, perhaps thought that it might come out that Kurt Cobain actually wrote most of those songs because that ended up being a very successful Hole album, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh I, I have no idea how much of that is true or false, but I, I'm i inclined to believe it. But hey, you're listening to a fucking Nirvana superfan. Kurt Cobain was very talented. He was. He had a very strong ear for melody. He had a very good sense of... I mean, it's just... He was Nirvana. Like, let's be honest. Like, he wrote the he, all the lyrics the arrangements of the fucking instruments. And I don't give a shit how fucking grimy and grungy you think it's like, you want to write it off. It's like if, if other people, if other grunge bands could capitalize in the same way that Nirvana did, they would, they would be Nirvana. You know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. like people want to like write off grunge music because it's shitty. And it's like, it's, you know, it's like punk where it's kind of, it's the musicality of it is not what is the draw, but I think that that is, um, uh, I think that that's naive, that that's a naive take because, and, and, and while, you know, I just think that, that so much of it was on Kurt and yes, I know that Nirvana did get into some beef with each other. Kurt did what so many frontman rock stars do. Kurt isn't without his flaws, okay? I I'm, I'm not so blinded by my Nirvana love that I'm sitting I, I will I'm willing to to look at Kurt and think he's this um like uh that he is a uh, he is not at fault in any way. He did shitty stuff where, you know, he wanted like 100% of the band's fucking like all the rights, all the re- like so much stuff and they eventually settled on like 75% you know, I've never been in a band. You know, every every other creative project we've ever done together, we always split it three ways or two ways or four ways, whoever's fucking involved. I get it. I get that. But a band is different. Kurt is contributing all the lyrics, all the music. He's picking who's playing what. He's, he's fucking writing the melodies and the hits and the, you know, it's all him. And then it's, but you know... I'm not here to fucking judge that. Whatever. That's between them. And, and on the other hand, Kurt wanted to be this, like, he wanted to be this, like, nobody rock star. But then, uh, you know, on the other hand, it's like, he, he wanted to also be like, he wanted to make like a great fucking album. And he's got all these opinions on music that are all over the place. He could be a bit of a whiner. He had some strong opinions on music a gatekeeper, I guess, if you will. You know, famously, when they were recording Nevermind, Kurt bitched and moaned constantly about all the... So on Nevermind, they they doubled, tripled, maybe even quadrupled his vocal tracks to give it some real fucking oomph and to make it sound big and fucking like it was, you know, like it had raw power. And Kurt hated that. He was like, what the fuck is all this mixing bullshit? In fact, the whole band hated the first mix of the show. But Butch Vig would always tell him, hey, listen, the Beatles did doubled their vocals all the time. John Lennon did it all the time. And then Kurt would sit there and he'd pout 
And then you go, well, I guess if John Lennon did it, I'll, you know, I'll do it too. Because he looked up to John Lennon and it's like, you know, I get that it's tough. I know what that's like. You know what that's like to have a creative project, to put it in someone else's hands and have them go, listen, I know, but this is what's best for it. It's hard to do. I don't really blame him for bitching and moaning. Making an album's hard. Yeah. Um, hey, I, uh, so as part of the research, um, I have this book at home called The Dark Stuff, Selected Writings on Rock Music uh, by Nick Kent. And there's a section on Kurt Cobain. And so I read this as part of the research. Can I read you a passage from it? You can read. Yeah, read me a fucking passage, dude. All right. So I'm quoting from uh, from The Dark Stuff, from Nick Kent's The Dark Stuff. What is this? Okay. Oh, this is First Corinthians. First the Corinthians dark stuff. chapter verse, three. Yeah, verse, verse <laughs> okay. 21. Um Cobain himself bellyached about it to the press almost as ceaselessly as he bemoaned those strangely undiagnosable quote-unquote stomach problems that so cursed his life. But I always saw his griping as a punk rock pose and essentially a cop-out on his part. I mean, this guy was planning on being a rock star from the age of two. The only thing he ever found halfway motivating was playing guitar, writing songs, and singing them in a voice that sounded like one of those chamois leather cloths used for washing cars being methodically ripped down the middle. In truth, Cobain probably had all his, quote, uh, major league rock icon, quote, end quote, moves worked out far in advance of the early fall of 1991 when his trio finally got catapulted rudely into the greater public eye. He always professed to hate all the attention with which fame presented him, yet the first thing he did upon going platinum was to marry Courtney Love, a young woman who wantonly draws attention to herself like a magnet sucks up tiny ball bearings. And and that's the end of that. Jesus fucking Christ. What do you, what do you make of that as a... They as were a obviously Nirvana big fans. Fan. What do you make of that as a big Nirvana fan? I don't agree with that entirely. Listen, I don't know Kurt Cobain, and we'll talk about this in a bit. I don't know Kurt Cobain. I didn't know him personally. I don't know anybody who knew him. Okay? The only things I can gather are from the Heavier Than Heaven book, which is great, and I assume that most of that stuff is somewhat factual, as Christopher Cross did a, I mean, a fucking insane amount of just research and just lived for that book. I don't know if Kurt had that. I, I will agree that I think there was a lot of posturing in 90s rock and it was a bit of a I think there was a bit of a transition it was a reaction right it's almost like uh in uh in real life cultural events or real life politics when the pendulum swings really hard one way it ends up coming back the other way right in the 80s we had all this hair metal and just like the most like posturing it was all about the look kind of music um, it was not about the musicality. It was about who had the biggest hair and who was the fucking biggest act. Stuff like that, right? And so in the 90s, shit swung back the other way where you had all these bands who were like, I, we don't give a fuck what we are and who we look like. We're just going to make the fucking music we want to make, man. This is the 90s, bro. <laughs> I know that that voice is not probably no, accurate. That's, yeah, that's... Uh... But but I do think that that was kind of part of it. That's why they wore the fucking flannels and the jeans. And everyone was like, yeah, that's it. That's who we are now. We don't give a shit about hairs and being, you know, part of the crowd. It's like, 
we're just going to be ourselves, man. Reality bites. You know, the movie Reality Bites, I feel like, kind of captures that zeitgeist where you have all these these young artists and they all live together. And then you have Ben Stiller kind of playing the corporate stooge who takes their 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 home movies and and bundles them to MTV as this over-the-top reality show. Um, I wasn't, obviously, you know, born in the 90s, not truly... I know a lot of us true millennials like to say we're 90s kids, but we're not. We're we're early millennia kids. That's who I am. Um, you know, so that's my feeling on it. Yes, Kurt probably did a lot of posturing. I don't, you know, I'm not going to sit here and comment on this guy's relationships like he was my fucking best friend. From what I've read, I think that Kurt, Truly loved a few of the girlfriends he had before Courtney Love. They didn't reciprocate that to him. Tracy Miranda, I think it was. Loved Kurt, but wanted him to take life a little bit more seriously, get a job, you know. Wanted them to have like a more normal life. Mm-hmm. Quote unquote. Um, you know, and, and this is when Kurt, Kurt used to, Kurt was a phenomenal artist i mean his paintings were beautiful he was a very gifted artist as well if he was not a rock star he would have been a literal fine artist and he used to he used to coat his paintings in his own semen so you know this is what this guy was doing i mean he was in his he was a young adult at the time you can't i'm not gonna i mean i'm not making excuses for that kind of behavior because it's if you received if a friend gave that to you be like what the fuck dude but anyway uh, you know, and then Toby, Toby Valley, he loved Toby Valley. They agreed on so much stuff, but, but Toby Valley was not in a place and did not want to have a relationship with him. From what I've read, Toby or Tony, I think it's Toby, um, wanted to have want like, you know, was very f- flippant with her boyfriend. She was like, they're like little accessories that I carry around and I do with what I please. And I think that those things affected Kurt. And I think, you know, he meets Courtney Love. Courtney Love fucking pursued him like a hungry shark and just would not let go. He wasn't that into Courtney Love, apparently, at first. He blew her off multiple times. He's like, I don't, I'm not, I don't want a relationship with you. But she just, you know, fucking would not stop pining after him. And, you know, they both had some common interests. She was a bit of a loud mouth and kind of, you know, uh, headstrong. And Kurt used to be a, it was a pretty reserved guy. And I think they both were rampant, you know, drug abusers. So one thing leads to another. That's what I think. From what I've read about Kurt and his relationships and his life, that's what I think. To say that his singing is like a ripped towel is a little... All right, you're kind of sniffing your own farts here, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I guess I was going more for the, like, you know, like some of the other stuff is, you know, is he, is he co- constantly complaining about being famous, but while actually... That's all he really wants is to be famous. You know, I, think I don't people, know. I think people. I've read stories kind of that he he bought a Lexus and it was like he 
barely drove it because he felt like he didn't deserve it. When they bought the Lake Washington home, apparently, because it was a big, it's a big house. It's like a big mansion. Yeah. And um, right. as evident by the fact that it has a giant greenhouse above the garage, not a right. little broom closet. He would like stay in like one little room and just stay there because he was like, he was weirded out. He, he jumped, the, the stardom level jumped like instantly. Like they released Nevermind and they were like, we might get, let's, I don't know, I'm going to, a little number, 50,000 sales or something, you know, and they'd be happy with that. They did, it fucking blew up and it was like overnight stardom. And you got to remember, Kurt was what, like 24 mm-hmm. when that happened? Yeah. He wasn't prepared to deal with that at all. Yeah. And what kind of fucking social structure did Kurt have around him? I think he had some good people in his life. I think the people of Sonic Youth, the band members of Sonic Youth seemed like decent folk, you know. Some of his friends, but it's like they were all just kind of like shitheads. Like they were like little goofballs. Yeah. And and they were like, you know, partying and, and doing shit and like making music. And then all of a sudden you're like the fucking voice of a generation. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, I just wanted to make weird songs. You know, I think Kurt felt a lot like the media always misconstrued his lyrics. And they were like, what do your lyrics mean? And he's always just like, dude. They barely have any meaning. Like, they don't have meaning. Some of them do. Some of them don't. You guys read into them too much. Yeah. Yeah, the way the way my wife described it is that Kurt Cobain just wanted to be 1968 John Lennon. I mean, to your <laughs> earlier point. But I don't know. I, I look at it through the lens of also a person who is in an entertainment field, kind of. It's like we're adjacent to it. We're tolerated in it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Entertainment adjacent. (laughs) Some people are entertained a little bit. Um, Namely ourselves. Yeah. We mostly entertain (laughs) ourselves and we do a great job at it. Um, But it's one of those things where I feel like I get that. I understand that being famous comes with certain um, unsavory aspects and that, you know, People don't like those. It's hard to have a private life. Um, you know, you, your, your whole, like, your lifestyle changes a lot if you're famous. But for sure, at the same time, it's like, you know, I feel like this is true of Kurt Cobain or of anybody. It's like you don't get famous because you don't get famous on accident. Do you know what I mean? Like, rarely. I mean, maybe now today you could have you could be videotaped you could be recorded on somebody's phone doing something and it goes viral and you become famous right. and you didn't know that was happening. But Ken, Ken bone. Ken yeah. Bone. Ken bone. Exactly. You remember, you remember Ken bone, yeah, the guy, yeah. the guy from the town hall in the what? 20 God 16, or was it even further? Yeah, be that? No, it was 2016, 2016 election. And he was wearing the fucking sweater yeah. and then he became a meme. And then people found his Reddit account and found out he was like what porn he liked or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, so but this is the 90s, right? So right. Nirvana couldn't have become a band with a band that was known without trying, right? Cuz they could have just kept playing rinky dink shows for the rest of their existence and never made any effort, but obviously they put effort in to becoming something. So I find it I find it personally a little bit dis, disingenuous to say like, "Oh, well this was what this was never what I wanted." It's like, 
you kind of did want that, even if you didn't want it exactly this right. way. You did want this, at least in some sense. And yeah, there's some aspects of it that you don't like. There's also aspects of it that you probably really do like. That's my yeah. two cents. Yeah, I mean, getting to play giant fucking shows all over the world and I don't know. We always talk about this with like um altruism. The 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 philosoph- our philosophical discussions on altruism, whether we believe that altruistic behavior can ever truly be achieved or if in every sense of the way that you do something, you're always getting you're always getting something in return and that somewhat influences your decision to to do things regardless i think that it it applies as well to entertainment the entertainment field you might sit there and say well you know like i don't know when opportunities present themselves it's kind of like most entertainers are gonna are working towards that in a way right and they're not gonna say no right like if somebody says like because it's like, hey, if, you can be on SNL. You know, I, I'll sit here, I'll fucking chastise SNL all day and talk about how shitty of a fucking show it is and how it's not funny. And it's, uh, I mean, from what I know about the work schedule is fucking torture. Um, it, you can go get on it for a year and they'll fire you at the end of the year. Yeah, right. <laughs> like every um, other job I've ever had. We know we've crossed paths with people who have gone on to work on that show. Mm-hmm. Um, but if Lorne came up to either of us and said, Hey, man, I'm going to put you guys on the show, like I'd first say, What are you doing in my house? Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, big fan of the pod. <laughs> Love the podcast. Got your info online, broke in. Um, do you big fan, big friend of Mr. Bunker? I'm a friend of his. Mr. Bunker gave me your address and spare keys to your homes. Homes. Don't you think you'd say yes? Like you'd consider it at the very least. Am I right? Like, oh, you'd have to give it extremely serious consideration because it could be life changing. You'd have to be like, you know, yeah. You'd never say, you'd like never, Kirk, Kirk Cobain, you'd never turn no, it down ahead, without go a good reason, right? Like you would never turn it down just out right. of hand and be like, no, uh, just, you wouldn't flippantly just turn it down. But if, I think that if, if, you know, if we're going to portray Kurt Cobain as like just this artist's soul, uh, who all he wanted to do was make his music, uh, and didn't care about the commercialization of it at all, it would be really easy to just say no out of hand and flippantly turn things down right you know oh let's go let's go record this album in a studio no thanks not into that like it would be real easy if yeah why leave why leave why leave sub pop and go to a major music label Yeah, exactly why why record with butch vig Mm -hmm. you know why did you want to do do why did you want to essentially steal even kurt will say that that a lot of things he did was petty theft of the Pixies. Um, and so much Pixies influence is is in Nevermind. And that's apparent by the way that they... I mean, listen to Smells Like Teen Spirit and then go listen to Where Is My Mind. You know, it's that same uh, ethereal uh, verse and then uh, pre-chorus and then heavy fucking rockin' chorus and then, you know, solos that are just repeating the melody, breakdowns. I mean... The, 
so much, so much pixies involved in, in Nevermind. Um, why do all those things? Why, you know, yeah, you're exactly right. If they really, if he really was just like an artist who just wanted to put out his music, he'd be like, um, I don't know. So many of these like unknown artists that, you know, people like us barely know about. Or, yeah. Like us. Or he'd be like, uh, fuck. What's that goddamn guy's name? God damn it. I forgot his name. Oh, that guy. <laughs> uh, you're not giving me much to work on here. Oh, you're Googling. Um, I'm trying to figure it out. You go ahead. You say G.G. Allen. G.G. Allen is a... Basketball player? Was an absolute just fucking, like, psychopath. He used to, like, he'd eat, like, feces on stage and, like, come on the audience and fucking, like, he was, like, an actual... Like, he was... He was just an insane person. Fucking, like, he would cut himself on stage and bleed all over the audience and do just crazy shit. You know, maybe that's a bad example. Uh, but, you know, why wouldn't Kurt just, why wouldn't Kurt just be like the Melvins? Like, so many people have never heard of the Melvins. Yeah. Or Mud Honey. Why wouldn't he be like Mud Honey? Another band he looked up to. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean. People don't know who the Melvins and Mud Honey are. And that's because those dudes never stopped making music that sounds like actual grunge music. Like, dirty <laughs> visceral unappealing grunge music right kurt bleach did well but it it wasn't um a commercial hit nevermind did well because they took a step into the pop realm those songs are radio friendly right the music video is mtv appealing it's set in a fucking high school for god's sakes You know? Yeah. And and that's fine. I think that's fine that he did those things. Yeah, I'm not saying anything about it. I'm the only reason I bring it up is because I think that, you know, and, and obviously Kurt Cobain is is dead for a long time at, at what? At the point of this recording. So <laughs> wait, what? So we don't have any more information about Kurt Cobain other than what was available at that point, right? We're not getting anything more out of Kurt Cobain. Right. But to me, I think that some people use, look at his death and say, oh, of course it was, it was a suicide. He was such a tortured soul. He never wanted this fame. And then it got thrust upon him, mm. even though he never asked for it. And then it ruined his life and he couldn't deal with it. And it's, I just, mm. I don't find that to be a logical, reasonable thing to say, you know? I don't, I don't, I don't, I have, I don't, that doesn't yeah. speak to me at all. I have, I have, I have two things about that. Yeah. The first I want to say is, well, maybe even three. I think, I do think that Kurt recorded in utero as a response to Nevermind, because I do think that he looked at ne the response. He, I don't think he was necessarily happy with the, with all them. And so in utero, while it is a commercial success was not as, I mean, he literally made a song called rape me. Right. Because it's like. You know, he wanted to push buttons and he wanted to show like, hey, I'm not this fucking radio friendly pop guy. Now, obviously, like you said, Kurt died and 
who knows what uh he would be he would be in his like nearing 60 right i think he would be nearing 60 Jesus Christ. Um, Maybe he made his what, 50s or something? In, he was born in 27 in, 60, in 1994. Yeah, he was born in 67, right? Um, yeah. So, so he'd be in like in his 50s. Yeah, he would be 50, turn 53 this year. So who knows what kind of person he... Maybe like later in life he would start just like releasing acoustic albums. Like Unplugged. He didn't. He did an acoustic album. Like there was talk before he died that after In Utero they were going to release... Um, a much more like slowed down and like different paced album that was way more like personal. And so I don't know. I don't know what to say about his relationship to music. I do think that that was part of the pendulum swing of the nineties was you had all these people who, yeah, they wanted the rock star and the fame and all the stuff that comes, but they wanted to act like they're not sacrificing their art, their artistic integrity and i think maybe that evened out a bit in the 2000s where you had bands like the strokes or bands like the arctic monkeys that were fine with their commercial success yeah that's what you're in a band for dude is to be commercially successful and they also did have a little bit of a look like you're lying to yourself if you think the strokes the one of the big selling points of them was their look these dudes were like good looking sons of models who met at a fucking Switzerland boarding school. <laughs> you know, you want to tell me their fucking fashion wasn't part of it. Right. You know, Oh, they're just these garage rockers. No. So all of it kind of combined and it, it stopped becoming this like, Oh dude, my image sort of thing. Right. And I, and so, and then my third point okay. <laughs> is about the nature of, people talking about his suicide and 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 what i think is that i'm not going to sit here and, and none of us can sit here and act like we knew kurt cobain and i do think it's foolish that soaked in bleach sits there and shows interview old interviews year old interviews of kurt cobain you know interviews from 1992 1993 where he's like yeah i'm happy as a fucking clam even interviews 3 months before i'm happy as a clam you know and say like, and then go interview like people who knew him in his childhood and be like, yeah, I don't think he'd commit suicide. Yeah. I mean, no shit. You know, when the suicide is such a terrible, tragic thing that one of the things about it that you hear so frequently is that people had no idea. Right. You know, and that's because it's this thing that like, it's this darkness that lives within this person and for them to sit there and act like, Oh, see, look, oh, he, look at the, this video where he says he's happy. It's like, dude, like how dense are you guys right now? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. I didn't uh, find that very compelling either because I, I think it's almost a little rude. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times I think that a suicide is a culmination of a lot of things that a person is feeling that they don't necessarily communicate. You might have inklings, you know, as a person who's close to yes. that person, that maybe something's right. off or that person has a particular feeling about a certain thing. Uh, and I'm being very vague purposefully here, but, um, you know, with with Kurt Cobain, it's like, yeah, they point to all this stuff that he says is happy. Like, what's he going to do going in an interview and be like, I don't know, I'm kind of suicidal. 
Like, <laughs> like, what's he like? Is he gonna say that? Like, that's kind of a silly thing yeah, to expect. Honestly. Or that he's gonna say to his friends, you know, hey, you know, I've been thinking about committing suicide a lot. I mean, I know that sometimes happens, but I don't think that you should expect that somebody, especially somebody who knows that anything he says could end up in the press, that he's gonna be so right. careless and just say to somebody, I've been kind of thinking about suicide, you know. If it's, you know, if yeah, it's somebody like me, it's low stakes. Yeah. Nobody's going to find out except the people that I, I'm probably close to. But for somebody like Kurt Cobain, especially at this time, if he said something like that, it'd be all over the newspapers. Yeah, I, I think it's very misinformed. It's a very misinformed part of the documentary. It's not a huge part of it, but it is part of it. And they do try and make an argument for it that he there's no way he would have been suicidal because... His friends say he was happy, and he, he was happy in this interview. You know, people, unfortunately, take their own lives for lots of different reasons. People who, it seems like they're on top of the world. It seems like they have everything. Um, It can be very unexpected. You know, it can be, like with Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, nobody saw that one coming. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I... We're joking, but it, it really is a true thing. And, and and one of the unfortunate aspects of it is like, you know, oh, we don't need to talk about it. It's too dark. We let's we should get into the topic. Like, let's like since we're um, here and we're talking about Kurt Cobain's friends, like I got to say, oh even too, God. if we're going to say Jesus Christ, that, oh, all of his friends said that he wasn't there's no way he could commit suicide. Like, I don't think that his friends are credible. I'm just going to say that right up for like Dylan Carlson. Don't trust him. Um, nope. I'm not even, I don't think so either. I don't think Dylan, Callie, Courtney, um, Dave, Dave and Chris were, they were shielded. They, you know, they were part of his life, but they were his bandmates. They had their own lives. Yeah. They had, you know, um, they were obviously very close, but, they were close. You know, but, there was there was beef. There was beef. There, the band almost broke up a few times. Right. People don't know that, but they almost did. But it's also... And I'm ashamed to say that I own Kurt Cobain's journals that they fucking published in 2002. You know, I was a young kid. I idolized Kurt Cobain. Um, and I, I bought those journals. And um, there are un, unsent notes... It's such a fucking, now that I think about back on it, it's what a fucking money grab. (laughs) Like what a fucking money grab they did to try and get, squeeze every last little fucking dime out of Kurt Cobain, fucking Courtney Love and whoever else she was dating at the time who they published those fucking journals. You know. Absolutely. God damn. Your fucking private journals. Most of them is just chicken scratch and doodles, but there are like unsent letters to people, there are unsent letters, you know, there are um, letters that he would, things he wrote, grocery lists, there's um, lyrics, logos. It's fucked up. I mean, I don't, I mean, you know, in some ways I regret it, but I was a little kid. What was I going to do? Yeah, you you don't have the same opinion about it that you would today because... I mean, frankly, what it, what an invasion of privacy for a guy who who valued his privacy so highly. Yeah, for fucking Courtney. Oh God. I mean, it's oh, let's take all of his private journals, fucking sell them. I mean, to me, it's just like so insulting to the man. You know, he's he's 
tragically dead and he can't do anything about it. And then like something like, can this. you imagine like if I, if I unfortunately passed away and I fucking found out that you were selling my piss tapes <laughs> on the internet as like a big bundle of my piss tapes, I'd get, I'd fucking haunt the shit out of you, Andy. Uh, if I find out you did that, I'll come down as a ghost and I'll haunt the shit out of look, you. Look, I'm just letting you know that if you die, anything that I'm in possession of immediately is sold to the highest bidder. <laughs> and I will have no shame about it. You're not touching my piss tapes, damn it. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to get your piss tapes. I'm going to break into your house and steal those piss tapes. Um I don't trust Courtney Love. She really fucking doesn't help herself like at all. She is I mean, there listen you could say what you want about Soaked in Bleach. Tom Grant has audio recordings of her saying some fucking fucked up shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you could sit here and write it off as well. She was a drug addict. She was high on drugs. Yeah. Listen. <laughs> That's not being fair. Uh, yeah. Drug, drug you know, use probably informs some of her decision making. But I think that the things that she does speak a lot to her underlying character. The drug use is not changing her character. It's just changing the way she approaches things. Right. I mean, she comes off as somebody who's manic, right? Like, right. She's got a hundred different scenarios in her mind that she's cooked up and she doesn't know which one to do. Like that seems manic to me. That's probably consistent with heroin use. I would guess, uh, is be being manic. So, like I don't think that it's I don't think that it's making her do these things. It's just it's informing how she approaches the problem. Uh but at the end of the day, I think the way the scenarios all are kind of the same. Like she comes off as manipulative. Um she's comes off as a like chronic liar, pathological even liar. Um and I mean, a narcissist, like, again, I'm no, I'm no like psychologist or anything, but that's to me, that's what I see. Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. And we've seen that from Courtney Love. She's been in the news. She pops up every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, the one of my big things with this case is that it shocks me. I don't know. Maybe when there is like a pretty clear suicide but still when someone dies regardless of how it looks don't you think you should go question the significant other yeah like couples murder each other all the time yeah because men are from Mars and women are from Venus am I right (laughs) oh you are so right (laughs) clap 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 I mean you delivered that line in front of that (laughs) clap clap you delivered that line in front of the brick wall uh, as you're wearing your blazer and jeans so perfectly. That was beautiful. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's my tie five. <laughs> but but I'm serious. Like, w- when someone dies, I just, I don't know how you don't question the significant other. I don't know how you don't question people who were inside the house. Look. Tom Grant was inside the house, and the police never questioned him. Seattle. Dylan Carlson. Inside the house, police never questioned him. Callie, I don't know anything about Callie. Yeah, Callie's he very lived in the house. He was one of the last people to see Kurt alive. You know, what was he questioned? Seattle PD. I don't think so. 
they might have actually gotten to the right conclusion, but they bungled this investigation like completely. This to me seems like such a mess. And, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of what um, Tom Grant is asking for, I don't think that Tom Grant is out here saying necessarily like Kurt Cobain was murdered and it's obvious that he was murdered. I think that to me, Tom Grant is saying, I think that the film Soaked in Bleach is saying that. I think that the film yeah. Soaked in Bleach is trying to get us to believe that Kurt Cobain was murdered. But I think Tom Grant himself is saying there are too many inconsistencies. There were too many things not done properly in this investigation. It needs to be reopened with an unbiased third party investigation to right the wrongs and come to the accurate conclusion, which ultimately might be a suicide. But that there's so many, like you said, it's Swiss cheese. There's so many holes. Something needs to happen. And I think that yeah. Seattle. Tom is a very. Um, he's a. Uh, he he was very concerned with copycat suicides. Yeah, which there were some. There were some, and you know he he's he's kind of made this Cobain thing his kind of life's work. It's kind of his magnum opus here, yeah, so to speak. And you can go. His website will be linked in the uh, description. He's got a bunch of the audio recordings. You go fucking listen to him. Um, it's, you know, it's wild stuff. There are, there's so many inconsistencies. Here's, here's my deal. We could talk about each one, Andy, as many as you're interested in, but my big ones. Yeah. I, I'd say I'd probably be fine. Well, first of all, my big thing is where the fuck was Callie? Because right. we have no info on that guy whatsoever. And he was literally inside the house. Right. Um, I mean, I don't know how you look at this case and not say, at the very least, you don't have to say whether you think it was a suicide or not. I'd like to see some answers. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'd like to see why that happened. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm fine with suicide if it was a gunshot or heroin. I do not understand how it can be both. There, To me, there is not a way that it can be both. I mean... It just makes no sense. I get what people are saying about it being, you know, that people's bodies react differently to the drug based on their tolerance level and that nobody really knows how Kurt Cobain would have reacted to that dose of heroin without observing him. But I think that we can say, and look, we've talked about stuff like this before, like with the ice doll woman. Why would you take so much drugs and then kill yourself another way? Like, especially for someone yeah. like Kurt, who's an addict. Why then, why shoot yeah. up and then kill yourself? There doesn't seem like that's supposed to be the peak right there. You know, if you're an addict after you've shot up, like maybe when he's coming down, I could see it or he's, you know, all the way down, but. Maybe right after I don't think I just doesn't it doesn't make sense. And maybe there is and maybe that's the answer at the end of the day is that he did some heroin. Put all the shit away and then killed himself, wrote the note and then killed himself. Yeah. And maybe that's the answer. But then you've got the shotgun shell, which I don't know how you explain that either. I don't know how to explain. Mm -hmm. that. And I don't know how that shell ends up on that side if the chamber is on the other side. So I don't know how to explain that. Uh, I don't know then if someone came in and shot him in the face 
how does the gun get in his hand? That's the thing. The hand is one thing that's hanging me up, right? Yeah. So you have to assume that his hand was wrapped around the barrel when the gun was fired. And I guess I'm, I don't know scientifically anything, but I'm saying to me, it just makes sense. Like that had to be, he had to be gripping it. Like he had to have a grip, not that somebody placed his hand on it. You know what I mean? Like if, uh, if we just explore this possibility that someone else is there, like that, Oh, he gets shot up with a bunch of heroin you know, more than he expected because somebody else is there with him and then wraps his right. hand around the barrel. Like if he's unconscious, how's he gripping it? You know, how is there a grip? Yeah. Is it someone would have to place? Yeah. They're like they holding his hand that. while the gun is fired. Like, I don't, yeah, I, don't I don't understand it. I mean, and maybe that's all plausible, but I think it's, it's all good stuff that, you know, actual police force <laughs> with all of this information should probably look into. Yeah, I mean, an actual third-party forensics team would hopefully be able to explore that. Or maybe, hell, we get the fucking Mythbusters no, on Let's the get Mythbusters, yeah. <laughs> Dark um, one for the Mythbusters. Uh, the, I mean, yeah, I don't know. If, if there is time in between, but I just... It just, you know, if you say, okay, he shot up a bunch of heroin, passed out, woke up, wrote the note, then shot himself. I don't know. I don't know how that shotgun shell gets on the other side unless yeah. somebody then comes in and tampers with the shotgun shell. There's so much missing info. If we had just had a fucking fingerprint scan or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Dusting on the goddamn gun. Seriously. We could explain it. Because if Kurt's fingerprints don't show up on the gun, then it's like, okay, yeah, he didn't shoot himself. Who did? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it just gets back to the, the botched nature of the investigation, which if nothing else, I mean, we talk about this a lot in our episodes. When the investigation gets botched, it's, it just makes the ground so fertile for conspiracy because oh God. because things aren't buttoned up. There are legitimate questions. There's legitimate problems. And that's yeah. what's happening here for sure. There's so many legitimate for problems. Sure. Um, I mean, I just, you know, Courtney has motive. Like didn't right? even like to pull something like she this, had but, motive. She had tons of motive. It's it is now known that, yes, they were. He was probably it. She said, I mean, like, like we said, she's a pathological liar, but Rosemary Carroll kind of, uh, corroborates this and she's somewhat tr somewhat trustworthy being that she was at least Kurt's attorney and a friend that that Kurt did indeed was writing to have her taken out of the will yeah. that Kurt did indeed wanted to figure out like get get the things moving for a divorce Courtney called Rosemary Carroll at one point in time and said you go find me the nastiest meanest divorce lawyer in the fucking country and hire him for me um, Courtney has motive. Kurt was going to leave her. They had a prenup. Yep. She was going to lose hundreds of millions of dollars. Hundreds of millions of dollars. Oh. That's a significant amount of money. This isn't like a couple of measly millions. Kurt was, um, Kurt was in another stratosphere. Okay. And, and she was going to lose out on all that. And she was going to potentially lose out on her daughter. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
they had already been in trouble because they were heroin addicts. Yeah, it's like know? what the first they were going to get their kid taken the away. The first six months of Francis Bean's life, uh, they had to be like under monitoring by the like yep. child protection, right? Yep. Yeah, and you know, you I mean, it, you're so right. It's like the prenup means Courtney gets a very small amount, and if you know. This was in the script, obviously. I'm just restating. But the fact that Kurt died, she fully inherited everything. Like, she basically became Kurt Cobain as far as Nirvana is concerned. Like, until... Yeah, she until the rest most of the, of the rights to, to all of it. What did they have to do? They, like, sued to uh, keep her from making decisions because she was so terrible. Oh, God. Yeah. So... I mean, and that's, like, when it came to release those fucking journals. Like, they got into a big legal battle. Yeah. And then they eventually settled on releasing them around the same time as they were releasing the greatest hits collection right. that included that new song. And, you know, Dave and Chris, I don't think there's motive there for them at all. I mean, they're no, I don't think anyone really considers them. Chris Novoselic left music completely yeah, and not involved at all anymore. Then lived his life as a libertarian political, I guess, uh, figure. And um, does he hold elected office today? I'm not sure. I think he ran for something or he wrote a book. My, and he occasionally yeah. and then Dave Grohl went and did his own musical career. He, and he and neither of these guys like Chris talks about it a little bit more. But like Dave Grohl did not talk about Kurt Cobain's suicide for a long time. Yeah. And the media constantly were like, is this song about Kurt Cobain? Is this song about Kurt Cobain? Is Monkey Wrench about Kurt Cobain? <laughs> right. You know, and he just like, you know, it was fucking hard on him because he looked up to Kurt and, you know, while Kurt might have not always been the best bandmate, uh, Dave was a young guy in a big band and he looked up to them and Kurt was a genius and, uh, you know, it's hard on him. So and then he, then you, you compare that with people like Courtney Love, who then like run around and sells his private journals and acts a fool on fucking comedy central roasts and uh <laughs> and uh you know is always popping up in the news for some reason or other usually unsavory reasons or another yeah the the two biggest ones for me are Callie and Dylan we never got questioning from them we never got there there are theories that Courtney Love used the heroin addiction of either both or one of those guys, probably Dylan. Mm -hmm. Cause I'm actually not hundred percent sure on Callie's drug use, if there was any drug use or not. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't even know Callie's last name. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to assume it's Fornia. No Fornia. Yeah. California. <laughs> yeah, I assume. I guess. Oh, okay. You get <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, I get. Did you get that I'm one? Or is it that one slip by? Yeah, you? that one. I yeah. I'm thinking about a lot of things here, so but yeah. California. Okay. I get it. I don't know anything about it, but the, but one <laughs> of the theories that I read a long time ago was that Courtney Love used the drug addiction of somebody. Right. And then Pat Smear is somehow involved, which I don't think that's true at all. Um, use their drug addiction to, to like essentially 
have them commit a murder. Right. And that might seem a little wild, but that's not that far-fetched for serious addicts. If these guys are willing to, like, you know, I mean, you you go watch fucking Train Spotting, the movie, and you can see what people addicted to heroin are willing to do to score, you know? Right, addicts will do a lot to get get another rush, you know? And, God, the fucking timeline, too, is... I mean, wild. It's like she has this goose chase. She's withholding all this information. Mm -hmm. They don't talk about checking the greenhouse. Why? Yeah. Why? I mean, I think Rosemary Carroll's... Why don't they talk about checking the greenhouse? I think Rosemary Carroll's testimony is interesting that she says she heard Courtney on the phone with Dylan telling him to check the greenhouse specifically. I think that's interesting. But, you know, with everything with Courtney, take it with a heaping spoon of salt because is she only doing that because she knows Rosemary Carroll can hear her probably and Dylan knows maybe hey don't actually go or she calls Dylan later and says don't actually go to the greenhouse like I mean she's all over the place it's hard to know she's calling these people like 18 times too yeah yeah yeah. the many 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 different phone calls it's a lot I mean, I don't know how you can look at that and not have at least a little bit of doubt. Like, yeah, there's just there's a clear motive. It's not it's not a stretch to say any of these things. Um, there's a shoddy fucking investigation. Yep. You know, yep. I don't the the thing that kind of bothers me is I don't ever think we will get an answer. No, you know, maybe one day something will happen to Courtney Love. People said that about, you know, people say that about like, uh, it's like, oh, we'll never know anything about Jeffrey Epstein. And then like, you know, what, a couple of weeks ago they got Ghislaine Maxwell. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, you know, yeah, hey, we might learn. Maybe we will. Yeah, we might. Maybe we will find out that. something. I mean, who knows? Until her but untimely might suicide. Um, <laughs> but are, one of the things, one of the things, um, in research uh, that you recommended to me, because you know that I'm no I'm no expert here. You tried to help me, and you know that my wife is an expert uh, in Nirvana. And I know who I know who controls the fucking strings behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah I, I I'm in control of no aspect of my life, and frankly, that's probably for the best. <laughs> um, but we watched Soaked in Bleach together, and then I Cute. I recorded her thoughts on it. And uh, I'd like to just go through those with you now, if that's okay with you. Okay. Okay. So the very first thing she said is that she didn't learn anything new really, uh, but it (laughs) allowed her to, which I mean, yeah, this was a big waste of my time. We we both, we both bunkfuckers. You don't know this, but we know this because we know her. Like that's a very, that's a very, her response. Um, But this did allow her to take a fresh look at this whole situation as an adult. Of course, you know, she's, she was a big, uh, a big Nirvana buff in her teens, uh, but hasn't, uh, been so involved in the like fan community or whatever as an adult. Um, so that was the first thing. Um, ultimately she says the end conclusion is correct. Um, the police investigation was poorly and incompetently done though. Um, the police should 
<laughs> I had to write this down. The police should have done a half-assed job instead of a zero-assed job. <laughs> uh, That's a solid she, <laughs> She also she's going to replace me on this show, by the way. She also said that yeah, uh, pe- people good. give Courtney too much credit. Uh, Courtney's not well enough put together to pull off something like this. Um, Interesting. Courtney's a constant liar and a manipulator. Courtney's trying to improve her image, but only after the fact. So not throughout trying to improve, but after the fact, trying to improve her image. Uh, Courtney's reactionary and not proactive. Uh, Courtney is a horrible wife and a horrible mother and didn't care if Kurt lived or died. Very strong there. Um, but my wife does not believe that Courtney Love seriously conspired to have Kurt killed. Um, so her thought is that Courtney was financially supporting people like Dylan and Callie, uh, to keep them from going to the press, exposing other things like details about their Mm. personal life or whatever. Um, so this is what else, um, I notes I jotted down. Probably all of the major players in Kurt's life knew he was dead in the greenhouse, but were waiting for someone random to find him to take off the heat, uh, which might help explain why the room was a bit askew when they found it. That stuff was kind of, you know, like the shotgun shell and stuff. Um, ultimately my wife believes it was a suicide, uh, Kurt Cobain, she says, had a history of emotional imbalance, uh, glorified suicide in his lyrics and artwork. Um, interviews show that Kurt Cobain was whiny. Uh, and if, <laughs> if thing, I mean, I don't know if she said the word whiny, but I wrote that down. If things are going bad for Kurt, it snowballs because he lacks perspective, which I thought was an f- interesting take. Um, however, all that said, there is no explanation in her mind for the heroin use at the time of death. Um, she thinks Kurt should have likely have been incapacitated. And as we've said, both, if he just shot up, wouldn't he be manic rather than depressed? Uh, not to, uh, right. He would be, uh, elated and high yeah, and not to jump too far ahead here, but, and be f- feeling good. If you want this now, she did give a verdict on the topic. Using Oof, the bunker. Stand. I don't know. I don't know. Are we ready to get in? I don't know. Verdicts? We could wait and reveal it later. I just am throwing it out there that she gave a verdict. I mean, well, let's get her verdict when we give our verdict. Okay, but okay. are we ready to get into verdicts? Um, gosh, I don't know. Um, there's a lot here, but I, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of feel like, yeah, maybe. Like I, I feel, I feel like I know okay. what I'm going to say. Oh boy! How do you feel? Um, do you think that you're ready? You know, I'm trying to think if there's any other um, last yeah. tidbits of information that we want God, to cover. there's a lot of tidbits in this. Ugh, so many tidbits. <laughs> so many titty-bitties. This was a Ben you and know, Jerry's flavor. Um, this would be chock full of tidbits. Yeah. <laughs> this would be one chunky monkey. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm ready to get into verdicts, too. Okay. Um, we'll save yours for last because I know your verdict is going to be a lot more uh, better than mine. Um, so the real question that we're approaching today is, you know, like case closed for us today is that this was this was a suicide, and that's it. That this was Kurt Cobain 
committing suicide, uh, just as just as we've been told. And then case confirmed would be likely that it's some kind of a murder plot. Um, and I'm going to be somewhere in between those things because here's how I feel. I, I can't I can't get over what happened at how the how his body was found like the toxicology and the fact that he's gripping the barrel of the gun are the biggest biggest hang-ups for me they they don't join up they don't make sense and everything together like doesn't add up to me so i'm only left with one possible place to go with this i mean i kind of don't feel like it was a murder like i don't feel like like he was incapacitated by heroin and then somebody shot him. Cause again, I'm getting back to this point of like the grip on the barrel makes me not believe that. Um, but obviously he was shot, right? Like there's no, we can't deny that. I mean, that's, everybody says that, that he clearly was shot in the face. Um, so we know he was shot. We know he had all this heroin in his system. I guess the only thing that makes sense to me when I consider that grip on the gun barrel is that Kurt Cobain probably pulled the trigger on that gun. But his body was there for multiple days. And I tend to believe that people in his circle, maybe even Courtney Love, but I'm definitely thinking that Dylan Carlson and California both knew that he was dead in that room. Now, what happened after that? I don't know. I don't think to me, I just don't think that he's shooting up this much heroin. Like, did they inject his body with heroin after he died? I don't know. Maybe this is some kind of a cover to be like, Oh no, he's dead. Like, what do we do? Maybe it was a legitimate suicide. I don't know. Maybe somebody's in the room with him. Maybe that's what Courtney said. Maybe Courtney's like, Hey, he might try to commit suicide. You know, if you have the opportunity, don't stop him. Maybe encourage it a little. I don't know. Like it's kind of, it's kind of sick to think of, but everything just got me feeling like there's something else there. Right. There's not enough. Right. Like, I don't feel like this is a, a straight ahead suicide. No way. No how. So, you know, I'm I'm not leaning murder, really, but I'm not super into um, I'm not super into the suicide just by himself aspect either. Uh, OK, so. I don't know. This might not be the right verdict to pick, but I feel like it makes me feel the best to say this. I'm going to say plausible plus because because I think that there is some level of conspiracy or tampering that happened in that greenhouse room after Kurt Cobain is dead. Like the shell on the other side, there's no way it gets over there. There's nothing to ricochet. I think that the, the, the explanation, I mean... The explanation of the shotgun flipping 180 degrees is like some kind of uh this is like the Tehran UFO explanation, right? Like it's so far-fetched that I'm like you had to make a like I'm I'm out of I'm out of <laughs> breath. I had to jog so far to like think about that explanation for this thing. <laughs> so, to me, it's like probably somebody was in there. 
probably somebody tampered with this scene between when Kurt died and when the electrician actually found the body and when then authorities actually arrive. You know, I feel like Dylan probably purposefully misled Tom Grant from going to the greenhouse. Um, I don't find Tom Grant to be like, look, let's be honest, Tom Grant, this is his whole fame right here. So like he's got a, he's, he's doing a thing, right? Like he has, he has a thing that he's getting to, but I don't know that he's, that makes him not credible. So like when he says that he didn't know that that room was up there and stuff, like I tend to believe him. He was coming into this like fresh. I mean, he's never been here in his life and he's relying on somebody who, has intimate knowledge to help him do what's right. And I think that person was yeah. p- purposefully misleading him and way bigger tell that two people who 100% knew about the greenhouse yeah. didn't mention the greenhouse for sure. That's you don't blame that guy for be. I mean, sure. It's a bit of a, it fucking sucks that he missed that, that room. But, um, but like by the time he got yeah, there, you don't blame I mean, probably Kurt was already dead. Oh yeah, hundred percent. So like, there's nothing. There's nothing. Tom he was Grant, there a day before Kurt was yeah, found. Tom Grant could not have done anything about it other than find the body. Well, he would have found the body, and then maybe actual the good fucking investigation. investigation wouldn't have been as bungled because <laughs> he would have been like, "Whoa, what the fuck? The gun is right side up." <laughs> yeah. So there's just there's too many, and I think I'm saying plausible plus because. I feel like there's that air of conspiracy to this. Like, I think that there's something going on yeah. that even if it's just as minor as Dylan or Callie is in the room with Kurt when he pulls the trigger, like that's, there's something about that and they that's never been told and that should be revealed, yeah. you know, like that was never, we don't know that. And so there's, there's some level of conspiracy. Like if you're in the room when that happens, Presumably, this is not a short, this is not like a snub nose freaking shotgun. Like, this has got a long barrel on this thing. Like, his arm had to be stretched out to, like, pull that trigger with his thumb. So, like, it's not like you're just going to be surprised by this, I don't think. So, I, I just, there's something about it. So, I'm going plausible plus. Uh, as for my wife, plausible minus minus. Plausible minus? Plausible minus minus. Whoa. Minus minus two minuses. She Whoa. she's nearing towards she's she's convinced that, uh, and I'll say this that even earlier in her life she felt like it was probably some kind of a murder situation. But she's she says the older that she gets, the more convinced she becomes that it's it was a suicide. Wow! But there's obviously lingering questions there, so she can't go case closed. Fair, fair enough. Yeah. So that's that's us. Um, we did not talk about the notes. Oh, the notes, yeah, the suicide notes, and what we think. You know, handwriting experts. I think it's a thing. How reliable is it? I don't know. Well, it it it's. I don't know Kurt Cobain. It's weird to me that the bulk of that fucking letter is about the music industry. And the last four lines are about his family, but I don't know him. Right. 
Yeah, it it seems you would think he'd mention his daughter a little more. But well, you know, I think I think that the one expert who said that the note at the bottom, the last four lines, which talks about the family, seems that it's somebody who's had a change in mood or is maybe under the influence of drugs or something. It's totally possible right. that Kurt wrote the the most of that note in one at one point and then added that part later after right. like shooting up or something. And we really don't know when the note was written. I mean, was sure. it written? I mean, I think what we're led to believe is that it was written in that room that day that he died. But we don't know that. I mean, who knows? Nope. Who knows? Um, and, you know, handwriting handwriting ex handwriting analysis is uh is far from a perfect science. I don't want to take a steam and dump on handwriting experts cuz these are like very these are eggheads in handwriting and they do a job yeah. that I could never fathom. I mean, they wouldn't be able to t- tell you anything from the steaming dump. They couldn't, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's a different doctor. Um but it's not a it's not a perfect science. I mean, it's mostly there's a little bit there's there's definitely a thing to it, but it's some of it is a little bit of just their opinion, you know, as people who are uh skilled in this. It can be swayed. It can be sure. swayed. If you're yeah, if you're trying if you're a lawyer trying to prove something in a court and you know, you maybe you get a different forensic pathologist, handwriting expert who agrees that, oh, my client didn't write that note my client couldn't have been the killer he his handwriting didn't you know yeah. didn't fit the 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 ransom note or something you know well so and one thing about it too is that your analysis as a handwriting expert really depends a lot on the samples that you get so yes. if you have a lot of good quality samples of a person's writing it's probably pretty easy for these people who are so like skilled in this to make an analysis. But if you have, you know, like um, the person we mentioned whose name I can't recall offhand in the, that took Tom Grant's call. Sheila Lowe. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, at 3 a.m. took Tom Grant's call. I mean, if you fax over copies of somebody's handwriting, it's like, no, that's not going to make a good comparison. But if you get actual factual handwriting samples from a person and you get a good number of them, then you can start to like really dig into what are the, what are the what's the nature of the way the person writes and then you can start to build a profile yeah. but if you only have a few limited samples it's it's pretty hard to do the uh the 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 paper of traced materials in Courtney Love's backpack what do you make of that one um why the fuck do you have that yeah i i mean it's it's inexplicable it's a lot like the crime scene uh i called it a crime scene uh it's a lot like the scene of uh Kurt's death. I mean, there's just some inexplicable things in this, and that's inexplicable. Who knows what purpose it was, though, right? Like the handwriting. Yeah. Who knows? Was it was it intended for the I mean, note? I read I read something that I couldn't find a source to was that Courtney Love in the past had faked Kurt's handwriting and written notes, like a letter to um, other members of Nirvana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the past, I could not find a credible source for that. Um, there is a unsent letter in the um, journals that she released in 2002, the journal book. It's a big book of journals, too. It's not like a it's a fuck. It's like a big coffee table book of journals. 
Um, there's apparently a letter in there that was never sent to Kristen Dave, I think, um, from Kurt. But uh, apparently Courtney had written letters in the past faking Kurt's handwriting to, you know, be an agent of chaos and stir up <laughs> yeah. controversy and fucking say that Kurt's leaving the band and blah, blah, blah. And God knows what. Um, it's it's just all very sus to me, you know. Yep. Okay. I don't really share your wife's uh, vision that Courtney Love is too stupid to plan something. Well, I don't think it's. That, I don't share I don't think that. that it's Courtney Love's too stupid, or, but that Courtney Love whatever. is too much of a wreck in her personal life. Right. To pull too much of a liability. Like yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't agree with it. I think that she. I think that she's a manipulator and my that, wife. <laughs> yeah, your <laughs> wife, dude. Your wife's manipulating you. She's the fucking puppet master. Yeah, I married her. I signed up for it. I yeah. knew what I was getting into. She can. She's controlling you. She's got a stick up your butt. <laughs> That's what I like. That's my kink. <laughs> She's Jeff Dunham, and you're fucking. <laughs> Pickles or whatever is stupid. Yeah, I'm that name. I'm that old man puppet. <laughs> you're Andy, the dead. I'm a yeah, boomer. You're the, you're the... <laughs> Jeff, you got your hand in my prostate. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Dunham. God, what a successful! Comedian. Now there's a fucking yeah, there's and a, a magician, a great magician there's too. A comedian. Or a ventriloquist. Oh, yeah. Not a magician. Yeah, whatever. All the same thing, am I right? He's a, obviously Every a art form that isn't podcasting a... is dumb to me. <laughs> Painting. <laughs> Especially <Sculpture>. improv. <laughs> <laughs> Calligraphy. <laughs> Music. Bop. <laughs> Basket weaving. Um, I I I think that Courtney Love is a little bit more competent than we. But I also think that this. I think that she's a little bit more of a manipulator than we give her credit for because she did send a fucking missing persons report under Kurt's mother's name so that the media wouldn't get a hold. That it was her and mentioned all that stuff to make it look like a suicide. And then at some point in the soaked in bleach doc docudrama, there's some piece of claim that the, the show makes where they're like, maybe one of the forensics people mentioned it. They're like, yeah, the number one way to get away with murder, make it look like a suicide. Um, Yeah. You know, and I don't know how much you buy into that, but this I don't think that this investigation, I don't think that this murder, quote unquote murder, if it was, would have held up to even the slightest of proper investigative tactics. Am I right? Like, <laughs> well, did these be like, like they would never have blood splatter analysis. We didn't get a blood splatter analysis. We didn't get fingerprints. Yeah. We have no idea what the real toxicology is. Right. We're going off of what Tom Grant says. Right. We didn't get you know, detailed ballistics of the whole fucking scene. 
you know, where's the shells that expelled out of the, where's the pellets that expelled out of the, um, the shotgun? Where are they lodged in Kurt's head? Yeah. You know, how does that tell us? Does that tell us that they were fired into his mouth from a gun barrel or were they fired from five feet away from someone standing out across from him with a right. gun? Um, you know, what, what are the, um, when did Kurt Cobain die? Yeah. We don't yeah, know. When exactly. We don't know when he died. Uh, I mean, Jesus, there's so much other shit, mm-hmm. you know, the whole coroner's report. We don't have it. Right. Um, any other interesting, you know, fucking DNA evidence. We don't have any of that. Whose who's fingerprints are on the fucking doorknobs yeah. would tell us everything we need to know. And I'm in agreement with you. I do think that in some capacity, this was tampered with. And that is why Courtney Love sent Tom on such a fucking goose chase. I think, I think your wife and you are right in that she is a mess. And so in her, like she was in re she was supposedly in rehab the entire time that she was talking to Tom Grant. And then Tom also was like, she was doing drugs the whole fucking time and wearing lingerie. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, all right, Tom, we know what you're into. You fucking hound dog. Um, you know, I think in Courtney Love's brain, she was like, oh my God, like my fucking husband. I guess there's two paths here. Like one, she finds out early that he killed himself. Mm-hmm. And then she's going on a fucking goose chase with Callie and Dylan to cover it up or smear it up somehow. Right. Or, or the other path, she had him murdered and um, is also doing a similar thing and and she's hiring people like Tom Grant to do a facade. She's um putting the story out in the fucking newspaper as a bit of a facade as well. The missing person report, the mm-hmm. um you know, all this stuff not telling them about the greenhouse and then saying other things and then drugging, obviously drugging Dylan so that Tom couldn't talk to him. Never talking to Callie. I mean, never getting the polygraph test. Never dropping off the coroner's report. Um, which she is the only person in possession of. Right. So, you know, it's like that could answer so many questions. That coroner's report. Oh yeah, that would that um, would make a huge difference in this for sure. I I have da- I have so many doubts, and there all the things I just listed are question marks yeah. that I don't have yeah. <laughs> the absence of telling Tom Grant about the greenhouse, the alleged toxicology levels that I guess we'll believe is true because we don't have anything else to compare them against. And the shotgun shell. Um, and I guess in, in kind of the same tangent as my first one, Courtney, you know, kind of Courtney love and, um, her not telling about the greenhouse is Dylan Dylan's wishy-washiness. Mm-hmm. All of this combined makes me think that there is something very sketchy going on here. And I actually have to take the opposite on the scale of as your wife and say plausible plus oh, plus. I think I thought you were gonna say the opposite of me. Very, I was like, what? No. <laughs> no. Okay. Plausible plus plus. Yeah. Uh I believe that something very nefarious happened here. Mm, okay. 
And until I get some more answers, until something is shown that proves this otherwise, um, I have serious doubts. I couldn't, you know, I have very serious doubts about this case because until something comes along that proves it otherwise, I just don't know how you couldn't have doubts about this case. Let me ask you a question because the answer to this for me is yes. Uh, if this extra information that we're missing was revealed and you had a chance to examine it or, you know, read a summary. I mean, look, we're not eggheads. We're not smart guys here. We're, we're going to read a summary of somebody smart. Um, and all of that evidence pointed to. Yeah, we're going to wait till Brian Dunning does an episode <laughs> on the Kurt Cobain dev. And then we'll just read what he look, said. We're and- aggregators. Okay. <laughs> uh <laughs> If all that evidence came out and it all pointed to no conspiratorial angle at all that Kurt Cobain is just had some superhuman tolerance for heroin and then shot himself while being high on heroin, would you buy it? I guess I'd have to. Okay. If if it was a real third party investigation into the uh the 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 mm-hmm. death um and it seemed, you know, pretty legit. It answered a lot of the the things that I'm talking about. We got the toxicology levels. There, they reviewed the crime scene photos and maybe even released some of them. Of course, Courtney Love and Francis are going to fight that till the end of their days. Right, and they have somewhat of a right to. Francis especially has a right to that. Uh, you know, whatever. I don't know. You can make what make of that what you will. She doesn't want pictures of her fucking dad. Dead dad. Right. Strewn about the media. Yeah. And I get that. Yeah. But uh uh what else did I say? Maybe some ballistics if we could get that. I don't know if we could. They probably could try and generate a scenario based on photos. They could probably do I mean, hell, we fucking look at the fucking stupid JFK episode. They recreated like the whole fucking thing. Yeah. And that happened in the 1960s. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. And that recreation to, to was like the thing that convinced this, us. You know? Oh, oh yeah. no. Not. So. You mean the magic bullet recreation, not the more modern one, one that Nova did, right? It's not. It's neither here nor there. I shouldn't have derailed the episode for that. No, the the PBS one that was about oh, ballistics. Oh yeah, that was that was like the that was the thing for us. That was the one. Right. I mean, that explained the magic. That's bullet. like that. I agree with you. The 100%. magic bullet was the one thing that hung people up for so yeah, long. Yeah. And this is the thing. I think I totally agree with you. That would change the course of this whole. This whole thing is if somebody. If we that. got some ballistics that, like yeah. I said, that they were like, listen, the shotgun pellets, uh, you can see in these photos, are lodged right here, and then these brain. And skull fragments are lodged in a way like these these fucking ballistics and blood splatter guys. Yeah. It's really morbid, but like they can figure shit out. It's pretty wild. And they'll look at blood splatter and they'll be like, see, this blood splatter is evident that he had a gun barrel in his mouth and then fell over, you know, mm-hmm. Um Whereas, you know, if it's like, oh, what are the, there's all these splatters in this area over here showing that maybe somebody was standing five feet away. Um, we can never get fingerprint evidence. We can't, it's, we'll never get it. 
It will never, never exist. Kurt's corpse has been cremated. The gun has been melted down. The greenhouse room has been torn down. We can't get any of that. Right. The only things we could ever get are rudimentary ballistics, uh, the coroner's report, and some toxicology evidence and pictures. And I would have to t- accept that. I would have to accept that. So, you know, it might, you know, it might not, it might move only down to like plausible minus or plausible minus and a half or something, but um, maybe, maybe even plausible minus minus, yeah. but yeah, no, I, I would have to accept it because we can, we just can't ever have any of that other stuff. We can't. Yeah. I mean, I guess we could also get a confession. We could get confessions from Callie or Dylan years later. Courtney Love. Or something. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess that's true. Who knows what happens after uh, Courtney Love is dead. Yeah. Maybe we'll see some, eventually, some kind of resolution to this. I don't know who... I'm assuming the coroner's report would become property of her daughter. I don't know. Yeah, I would think so, right? Or it just stays in the state's control. Well, it's always something like Um, if you have proper, like, relationship or whatever, you could... I think that you could get it. I mean, I'm no expert on the the laws in in Washington or whatever. Yeah. Well... Uh, those are our verdicts on the death of Kurt Cobain. Uh, let us know what you think, Bunk Funkers. Use the hashtag. It's got to be. It's got to be something, Andy. <laughs> yeah, it does have to be something. Um, yep. Uh, oh, wow. Um, uh Smells like bunk spirit. (laughs) Yeah, let's do that. (laughs) All right. Hashtag uh, smells. Smells like bunk spirit. And let us know what you think about this topic. Email us, mrbunkerpod at gmail.com. Tweet at us, at at mrbunkerpod. Find us on Instagram, at mrbunkerpod as well. See our website, MrBunkersConspiracyTime.com. Find us on YouTube, Mr. Bunkers Conspiracy Time Podcast. And uh, yeah, Whew. Andy, I mean, this is a big one. You know, a huge some listeners have been asking for topics in which we are more on the plausible side. And I think we delivered. <laughs> yeah, this we were both pretty fairly plausible on this one i mean we're usually pretty not plausible and we admit this one there's some hair on this yeah um andy do you got any last words uh, <laughs> you got any last words uh, motherfucker <laughs> do i feel lucky punk uh no i don't think so i think we said it all here uh yeah let us know what you think i mean this has got to be uh hot topic for everybody right like this, this is, is a very impassioned one. episode yeah. there was a lot of impassioned speeches yeah. uh so you know bunk funkers let us know what you think we'd love to hear about it well uh that about wraps it up here andy it's time to get out of the 90s <laughs> take off our flannels take off our ripped jeans 
put on our uh, go back to where I was. I born, don't know joggers. Nineteen thirties. <laughs> That's right. We're gonna put on our nineteen thirties garb because we're steampunk enthusiasts. <laughs> and uh, so, for not the titular bu- Mister Bunker, but for my parsimonious. Oh yes, absolutely. Co-host. <laughs> Andy Hart I'm Art Stone saying that was the whole enchilada a denial a denial a denial Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.